Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall. Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break. Alley hooped to Giannis for an iconic slam. Seals game five and the eventual title. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Welcome to the podcast. I am Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Uh, thanks for having me, but did you just screw up your own name? I totally screwed up my <laughs> own whole intro. The whole intro was completely screwed up. This is I, a new low. You, this is a new <laughs> low for the podcast. It's like seven words. I can't even say seven words correctly without... Uh, do it again. Without... Start start it. We'll leave this in so that people yes. can hear it, but but do it. do the intro again so you get your name right. Hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Joe Posnanski, and with me is Michael Shore. Michael, welcome. Thank you for having me, Jorp. <laughs> I I feel I feel like I deserve that. I yeah. I you know uh, there are no fortunately there are no ads for us to read this week, which is good because uh, man, I I can't read. I've just yeah. gotten to a point where I cannot read things out loud. Uh, and 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 without screwing up. Now, how is your vision these days? Is it? Are you losing your ability to read, like uh, actually to read to, no, to see text no, on I pages? S- no, I see the words. It's it's clearly some sort of connection between my my sight and my mouth that, okay. that is being severed. Is so it's severed. a brain problem. It's it's, a it's, bra- not it's, a, it's it's an eye problem. It's not a sight problem. It's a brain problem. Great. Yeah, that's that's a that's a fact. That's so, what you want. So here we are. You know what? I mean, we're coming off of this goofy Hall of Fame uh, announcement or no announcement or nobody getting in and all of that. Uh, and uh, and we got a Super Bowl coming up. Is this a good time of year for, for sports? Well, it's, it's not like the, the worst last. time of year. I think it's the last week before sports just go to hell. Yeah, the 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 worst. Uh, we've talked about this before on this very podcast. Uh, <laughs> yes, the have. worst. The worst month for sports is March because spring March. training is happening, and it's like it's like uh, so. Baseball is like in is like out there somewhere, but it's not really that close and you have to suffer through all of March. It used to be okay because March Madness meant something, but now March Madness doesn't mean anything at all. Um, Football's gone. Basketball is just there. The teams are just idling and waiting for the, for the push to the playoffs. Hockey too. Yeah. Yeah, So, so it's March is, is brutal. And right now you still have, the feeling that the NFL is active, even though there's this absurd two week break before the Super Bowl. <laughs> it's, so uh, stupid. it's so dumb. But but yeah, this this is a rough time. The, the the two weeks before the Super Bowl are 
a uh, it's like an inoculation. It's preparing you for the misery of the February March corridor, which is just just awful. It really is like a that you know the worst part of it in some ways is pitchers and catchers reporting oh, because I know. I you're know. so excited and everybody all these tweets fly around and baseball's back and then it's an eternity before the games <laughs> actually start it's so long and this is the thing like we and again i believe we've talked about this before but in the old days spring training was required because the players in the off season would like smoke cigarettes and gain 30 pounds and they actually had and, to like and work, work jobs yeah. yeah they would work yeah they'd be like a ice ice truck delivery guys or whatever and uh, and that is obviously not the case anymore. They're all doing CrossFit at four in the morning every right. day. Right. So why are we doing this? Like you know, like pitchers, if pitchers need to like warm their arms up, they can do that by themselves over the over the course of the winter. Like why are we still doing a seven or eight week spring training? What is in that for anyone? It's I gotta believe it's pure tradition. I I don't. I mean, think about. 30 games that they play that are meaningless games. You need 30 baseball games to get ready for the season. Seriously, 30 baseball games? No. No. And by the way, I, I'm glad you said that about pitchers and catchers reporting because I know that's supposed to be like everybody talks about that like sort of it's the it's the birth of spring, right? Oh, my gosh. Here they are, pitchers. And, but those first few days when only pitchers and catchers report are terrible. <laughs> They're terrible. Like baseball doesn't really start. It's like they're oh, there here's a here's a shot of you know whoever of Yadi Molina, you know, and, and that's it. There's 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 nothing to even play with at that point. It's and I don't feel like I feel like the start of the of spring training games is kind of cool. Like the first couple of those, you're like, hey, it's real baseball. They're playing. Uh, although although those games are real baseball for like an inning and then, yeah. and then they put in, if you that. know, whatever. Yeah. If that, um, but at least there's something there. I, I find those, those like two and a half weeks before the game start to be just dismal, just dismal. Awful. It's yeah. just awful. And, yeah. and, you know, they've been looking for ways to, you know, alter the baseball season and stuff. Like one thing they could do is either slide the season back into mid March to start, and give more off days and just schedule all of the warm weather cities at, or the domes as the places where the games are played. Right. They could do that. And then, you know, for two weeks or something, or just don't start so early, just start, have, have spring training start on March 1st, have pitchers and catchers report on March 1st. I, I fail to believe that it's that they couldn't get ready in a, an entire month of, <laughs> of doing nothing but just like long toss in the outfield. It's just, it's bizarre. I don't understand. I mean, I guess also they're making money, right? That's the other thing is they're now like, you know, the, the, the spring training complexes are much nicer than they oh, used yeah. to be. And they're they all like, built they're... stadiums in Florida and they sell yes. tickets to these games. Arizona. And yeah, Arizona and Florida and Texas and all these places have these like facilities where people will are so desperate they'll pay money but right now that's not going to happen right so so like they're all there it's so they're going to report on february 12th or whatever and they're it's going to be this nine week grind of just nothing in front of no one i it's a it's one of the most frustrating things about baseball to me yeah i i, I agree i mean look i it, it's a question of whether it having that is better than nothing at all. And it probably is, I guess. I mean, at least you can, you can hear about people in the best shape of their lives and, and, you know, read a few baseball stories. Of course, if you get to go, which, which, you know, is not the case this year, 
it's fun. It's fun to be around the players at that time. I mean, they they sort of have a little more time for the fans, and there's there's a little back and forth exchanging. I I like that aspect of it, but uh, for a baseball fan who's just like you know going to work every day and just interested in in you know keeping up with the sport, yeah, it's 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 dead time. It just feels like it feels like complete dead time. And how about this? You know what I've learned as 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 hosting the podcast as we have done for what 12, 50 years or whatever it is. It's fifty one years. Uh, fifty one years. This, this June. This, yeah. <laughs> this June. I learned the word segue. How about this? Mm. So it's so watch it. Watch this. Watch this. Speaking of dead time, how about that <laughs> Hall of Fame vote yesterday? <laughs> it's I mean, a segue. It's a transition. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad you learned what a segue is, but now I think you need to practice the art of the segue. You're, you're, saying, you're saying the art. I haven't gotten the art down. I'm saying, saying you haven't like fully internalized what a segue is. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that Hall of Fame thing was dreadful. It was just dreadful. So for those of you, everybody knows, you all know what happened. But uh, yesterday, the uh, we were doing this on Wednesday, on Tuesday evening, um, after we got to on the MLB Network, if you were lucky enough, got to watch uh, Tom Verducci fill out his ballot in, in very uh, dramatic style. Uh, the announcement came that nobody was elected to the Hall of Fame this year. Kurt Schilling fell. Uh, he, he finished with 71 0.1% of the vote uh, was 16 ballots shy of getting elected. Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens basically got what they got last year. They're in 61 uh, point something percent. Uh, a few guys jumped up. Scott Rowland uh, made a big jump forward. Uh, Billy Wagner did. Todd Helton did. Gary Sheffield, uh, which was, I thought, very interesting. Um, but generally speaking, nothing happened other than lots and lots and lots of just like people arguing about like the character of players who, who don't seem to have a lot of character. And I, I'm depressed. I'm, I am honestly depressed about where the hall of fame and, and what, what that whole conversation has become. Yeah. Well, it, it was a mess to begin with and now it's more of a mess and it's more of a mess in part because of what Schilling wrote. So Schilling wrote this long screed, <laughs> what a screed. Uh, which is amazing to read. It's a, it's an incredible document that needs to be preserved <laughs> for historians <laughs> Um, he, so he, he, he conflated one of the things he did that made it more of a mess is he conflated his situation with those of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and sort of said like, I'm lumped in with these guys who cheated and, uh, and that's outrageous. And, and how basically he, he, in the same breath, quite literally, uh, said, that he didn't think he was a Hall of Famer, and also, how dare you not elect me into the Hall of Fame? Which is <laughs> yes. like a very, very confusing. It's very confusing, like most things that he says and writes. But the problem with conflating his case with the other cases is, if you're going to take character into account, that doesn't mean there's only one kind of character right. that you care about. You don't only care about cheating or something. You care about character. You and and his character issues, I guess you would call them, are completely different. No one's ever accused him of cheating. I don't nope. think he did. He's he, he's very aggressively defended himself as a guy who who played the game clean, in quotes. Um and so and I, I take him at his word on that. But also it's not it's absurd to say to 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 in any way compare his situation to those of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens and other people because 
we can have two different conversations about two different kinds of people. Like there's nothing, yeah. no one, and, and nobody, nobody that I know accused him of the same things that they accused Barry Bonds <laughs> and Roger Clemens. So he just made this up and then got angry about it, which is a, which is an incredible way to live your life. So, you know, the, the whole, all of these issues go to this larger question of, of character. And we've debated this publicly and privately about like, how do you justify uh, taking character into account when there are guys in the Hall of Fame who definitely were awful, awful people. They were racist. They were nightmarish people. They sure. they opposed integration. They uh, you know they took any number of different performance enhancing drugs, and yet they were in the Hall of Fame. And you know I like I've I've oscillated like crazy on this because on the one hand, if the point of this building is to be a museum that celebrates the history of baseball. The fact that Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds and Manny Ramirez and guys like that aren't in it is is ridiculous. On the yes. other hand, uh, they've there's always been a character clause in the Hall of Fame voting. And, you know, you, you we're in one of these gray area zones where, you know, when character is character is an ill-defined thing. And so you're in the position, if you care about character, of drawing a line somewhere. And anytime you draw a line anywhere in a gray area, you're going to end up in a contradiction. You're going to end up redrawing that line over and over and erasing it and saying, well, this guy, yes, but this guy, no. And someone's right. going to say, well, then how can you say that? Because what about this guy? You're going to have to go, well, that's a good point. I'll redraw the line and blah, blah, blah. And it just gets really messy. But on the, on the other, other hand, <laughs> on the other, other hand, when you go back and you look at those guys, who were already in the Hall of Fame, who clearly had character issues, one very obvious and true thing to say is, well, we didn't care as much back then about things like racism or violence towards women or other men or performance-enhancing drugs or whatever you want to call it. We just didn't care about it that much, in part because it was more hidden, it wasn't as advanced, it wasn't as egregious, or we just, as a society, decided not to care in the same way that the press actively covered up JFK's affairs while he was the president. Right. Like we then hit, right. at some point we crossed over into this other probably post Watergate. We crossed over into this zone where the press, the job of the press was no longer to hide presidential scandals, but to find and uncover them. And the same would be true about baseball. We care more about stuff like that now. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's probably a very good thing that we care more about the actions of these guys off the field or on the field in relation to cheating scandals and stuff like that. So the whole thing is a giant mess. And then you add to that giant mess the fact that the people voting on this are the baseball writers who are <laughs> compromised by their relationships with these players and by their personal biases and everything else. And what you end up with is this bizarre situation where guys who are the greatest players the game has ever seen, Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens among them, aren't getting into the Hall of Fame, nor is Manny Ramirez isn't close, and it doesn't look like we'll ever get there. Um, and you have a guy like Kurt Schilling who had a borderline case. You and I both think on the field he deserves to be in. Yes. But privately and, well, off the field, not privately, very publicly, <laughs> has advocated things like journalists getting murdered and seditionist threats against the government <laughs> and the violent overthrow of the United States and uh, and all sorts of and and has publicly backed all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories and and racist tropes and stuff like that. And so it's two completely different scenarios. Um, but they the but they both go to this 
very nebulous character clause uh, that that the world has decided to care about. And and I kind of think that even though you sound moralistic and you sound like you're on a high horse uh, when you talk about this stuff, I don't think it's a bad thing, frankly, if you are the kind of person who says, well, look what it says. It says that you have to, you know, you have if you have issues of character, that can be a strike against you. Uh, and it feels like where Schilling has ended up is is just about right. It's like there's a lot of people who are recognizing that his career was Hall of Fame worthy. And there's a decent number of people who are like, yes, but when you advocate murdering journalists, um, I can't quite summon up the the ability to uh, allow you into this sacred uh, temple uh, that we pretend is meaningful. <laughs> so <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where I end up. Honestly, it's it's a it's a big, giant, ugly mess. It's not going to get any better anytime soon. I don't know how to fix it. I have no solutions. End of monologue. Nice. You know, you ought to write a book about morality. <laughs> you ought to. You ought to think about doing. You know, it's funny. Like I, I, it's funny you say that because I actually am doing that. Um, really? I don't know if I mentioned this. Yeah, I'm uh, writing a book. It will be out uh, in about a year. Um, and actually, uh, we uh, I there's a large chunk of it that talks about exactly these sorts of issues. It's more in the sense of some of it is about athletes, but some of it is about. You know, when if you love an actor or a writer or a director or something who who then has some kind of awful scandal or if you were a Mel Gibson fan or you were a Woody Allen fan or something like how do you reconcile your love of that person's art with the person him or herself, usually himself. Uh, But in this case, we're talking about a more tangible thing, which isn't like, do I keep watching this person's movies? But if I am a voter, do I vote for this person to be immortalized? And that's that's uh, even a more kind of direct uh, and tangible version of this problem that we all face in our in our lives. Well, and, and there really are numerous issues that that people generally don't think about or don't want to think about. I know that that I've been in the position of not wanting to think about it. You vote Kurt Schilling into the Hall of Fame. You are putting a lot of money in Kurt Schilling's pocket. Okay, I mean, just just start there. Uh, Kurt Schilling's value as a speaker, his his value of his autograph, his value as a as a personality, it changes. It 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 always has. It's always changed the person who goes into the Hall of Fame. If you are a Hall of Famer. It's just a different setup than if you're not a Hall of Famer. So, so that is that is something. Do you want to think about that? Is that important? Should should that be completely out of somebody's mind? If you vote Kurt Schilling into the Hall of Fame, Kurt Schilling gets to go on the stage and 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 he gets a platform for whatever he wants to say. And yes, the Hall of Fame would probably step in and make sure that he keeps it on the field. And and I actually as 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 difficult a, a time as I have with so many of the things Kurt Schilling says and does. I believe he would respect that. I really do. I believe he he has enough respect for the game that he would keep it uh you know keep it straight and and focused on baseball. But you can't know that, right? You can't you can't know that. You give the guy a microphone, you give the guy a microphone, you give the guy a platform, he's gonna, you know, we heck, look what he does on Twitter, right? So these are things that that are not like sort of directly involved in in immortalizing a player, but they're very real. It's you are it 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 leads me to the question and and has led me to to sort of and and you know this because I've come to you with this. Um, 
to to wonder if this is the baseball player baseball writer's place to to vote in uh players into the hall of fame if, if this is really should be our role um i don't have a good answer for it I'm, i i don't have an opinion i'm not i mean i have an opinion but it's it's a it's an opinion i don't feel that great about and it's one that i feel is is moving uh all the time but it's a real question you know i mean it's it, there there was a a really interesting piece written today uh, i think by tim brown where he talked about, you know, that, that basically the writers have become a shield for, for the game and a shield for Baseball Hall of Fame so so that the baseball writers are the ones taking all the abuse. You think it would be easy for anybody to decide whether to vote Kurt Schilling or Barry Bonds or, or Roger Clemens into the Hall of Fame? It wouldn't. If you put it up to fans, it wouldn't be easy. If you put it up to Hall of Famers, it certainly wouldn't be easy. Um, but here are the writers sort of standing in front of all of that as a shield uh, taking all of the heat and all of the abuse while the Baseball Hall of Fame can sort of sit back with its hands clean. Hey, we're just we're just waiting to see what the writers do. And while Major League Baseball certainly doesn't have to get involved, I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth on whether or not the, the writers should play that role. Yeah, it, um, this is one of the big problems, right? Is there it really is no other group of people you would trust this to. Um, the 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 players were are allowed to vote on things like the Gold Glove Awards, right? And and we all know how that goes. Like they, it's not a, they're they are not a reliable uh, judge of their own abilities. And if you let the players vote, all of these guys would get in. This entire ballot, Jeff Kent would have gotten three hundred and fifty <laughs> votes, right? and and Tim Hudson would have gotten you know seventy four percent of the vote. It would get in <laughs> next time, and Bobby Abreu would be in, and Mark Burley would be in. Like. You can't let the players vote because they love each other so much and they're so amazed by each other in a sort of cute way um, that they would just everybody would get in. And so that that's not a solution. You can't let the same would be true of coaches. You know, when coaches uh, when managers used to pick the all star teams you know, uh, the, all the reserves, they would put seven guys from their own team on the team (laughs) and on the all-star team. And that was ridiculous. And so you get these weird relievers on the Yankees in the late nineties who were on like 11 all-star teams, you know? Uh, yeah. Like who does, I don't know. Like it's, and, and part of the fundamental problem here, right. Is that we're talking about something fundamentally, essentially trivial. It's not trivial for the guys who were in it. It's not trivial for, you know, within the world of baseball, but in the big scheme of things, of this is silly. This is a museum that says who were the best baseball players. It's not, it's not, you know, solving, solving an international treaty crisis or a, or a healthcare <laughs> problem or something. And so, you know, what are you going to do? Appoint a blue ribbon panel of 25 former attorneys general or something to, <laughs> to do that? No, of course not. You're going to have some group of people who were, uh, who were involved in the actual game and the baseball writers are, in, an imperfect solution, but it's maybe it's the quote about democracy. It's the worst form of government, except all of the others that have been tried. <laughs> right. Um, so maybe there's no better group of people to do this. I don't know. I just know that every year we go through this absurd farce where this, you know, and the Tom Verducci video, uh, I loved, as you know, I love Tom Verducci because he, he wrote the, I wrote, he wrote the, 2004 Sportsman of the Year article for SI about Red Sox Nation, and it made me cry like 30 times. <laughs> it was so, so good. He gets a lifetime pass for me. But that video of like, this is important, this matters, this is a, a weight, a burden, an onus that we carry on our shoulders. 
it's like, uh, I mean, okay. <laughs> all, right, all right, man. I guess. Like, I, I'm glad you're taking it seriously. But again, we're talking about which baseball players were the best baseball players. Like, it's it's a little over the top. And um, and so, I don't know. Are you going to find other people who have the knowledge and understanding required to do this job who also want to do it and also it's not absurd to make them do it? I don't, where would you find such a group of people? Like, you know, like anything else, it might be the case that, and I don't know, I know that the the composition of the BBWAA has changed a little bit over the last 15 years. Sure. Um, and that's good because they've let in more people who weren't just like old crusty beat writers for the, you know, Minneapolis star or whatever. They've they've invited people like you and Rob Nyer and, and people like that into the fold. Um, but maybe that needs to, maybe there just needs to be more of that. I mean, that's what happens in the TV or the, the film Academy, you know, like the film Academy that votes on the Oscars, um, has a horrific record, uh, frankly, of, uh, of giving awards to people of color, to women, right. um, to, to, to movies that are dynamic and interesting and groundbreaking and whatever. Um, and part of the problem is that like, they're very restrictive in who they let in. And so, you know, even now, uh, Oscar's so white hashtag Oscar's so white is still a problem. They're making, they're taking steps to correct it. They're, they've let in a lot more people of color and, um, and women in general. And there are people, there's a sort of generation of people in the film Academy who are like 112, and haven't actually seen any of these movies since like the early, <laughs> the last movie they saw was like ordinary people in the theater. And so, you know, like it's getting a little younger and a little more with the times, but, but like, it's going to take a while. It's going to take a long time before it, it actually represents sort of what you would want it to represent. Maybe the same is true for the BBWAA. I don't know. I actually don't know who's in and who's out. How many people are in that organization? Do you know? Well, I think there were 400 about 400 people who voted. So, you know, there, there's, there are a lot of people in the organization who don't vote. You know, you have to be a member of the BBWAA for 10 years and, but they've expanded it significantly. It has gotten much younger and, and much more sort of, uh, uh, sabermetric analytical. I mean, it is, I, I think they've done a pretty good job. Of course, you'll, you know, part of part of the issue of making every single vote public is that you'll see, you know, every other day, you know, you'll see Ryan Thibodeau of, of uh, uh, you know, who, who counts all the ballots. He'll he'll unleash a ballot. and It'll be like, oh, he voted for uh, uh, Tim Hudson, Latroy Hawkins and Scott Rowland. You know, and you're like, what? <laughs> like, what? like, why? How did they do that? So so, you know, you, you sort of see a little bit how the sausage is made. I love, by the way, and I had never thought of it this way, but I love sort of the comparison of the Oscars to uh, to the BBWA voting of the of, for the Hall of Fame because it feels like the Oscars. You know, we we all can name several Oscar winning films that were just these bland white bread, you know, things that were well done, but but didn't move the needle, didn't do anything, and it feels like guys like that like cruise into the hall of fame. Right. It's like, it's like, it's like those, those people cruise in and everybody who has an edge, who has, uh, you know, some controversy, uh, with them. Um, it's, it's like this, this group doesn't know how to handle it. And I much in the same way that I don't know that the Oscars know how to handle these groundbreaking, uh, and difficult films, I think. Yeah. I, it's, I mean, it's still the case that the, the, the only, 
really good thing that's happened in the Oscars, uh, or a sort of g- groundbreaking thing that's happened is the, is the La La Land Moonlight uh, <laughs> fiasco, right? right because right. that was a case where those those were the two movies that people thought had the chance, the best chance to win best best picture, and. Um, so, you know, La La Land is a movie about two very, very pretty white people yes. um, who who are obsessed with jazz, a nice. very, very not white piece of uh, art form. And uh, it, it's a it, you know, there are certainly things to like about that movie. Cinem- cinematographically, I think it was very lovely and stuff. But there is there like Ryan Gosling, who's a white person from from Canada, like at one point lectures John Legend about music. Yes. And you're just like, what is happening? Like, what is what is this? How is this? How is this happening? And um, and so the moment when La La Land won. It was like, well, of course, of course. Nobody thought that was weird. Everybody was like, yeah, right. I get it. Um, Moonlight, on the other hand, was an exquisite piece of art, uh, in my opinion. A, a like a, a mind blowingly beautiful movie. Yeah. That um that was difficult. <clears throat> it was very very. It was challenging, and it was it challenging. Was, it yeah. was small. It was very small in its scope. It was very personal and quiet. Um, and you know, I, it was a movie that I liked, I saw it three times and I liked it more each time I saw it. And I I worked with a guy named Cord Jefferson, who, um, is a writer who, uh, he wrote on the good place. He wrote a master of none. Um, he won an Emmy recently for his, um, for writing an episode of Watchmen on HBO. Great writer. Um, and he made an, he made a really, really good point about the movie. He's Cord is African-American and he pointed out that Moonlight was the first movie he had seen about what he would call the black experience that had nothing to do with white people. Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't in the context of of how the the, the African American uh, characters in the movie weren't measuring themselves against white people. They weren't suffering under the oppression of white people. It was just a story about African American people. Then end of story, right? And that was a really great point that he made. And so when that won over La La Land, a movie in which white Canadian people lecture John Legend about (laughs) about, uh, jazz, yeah, yeah, uh, it did feel like I was like, oh, maybe something's happening finally. Maybe this is a uh, uh, this is like a um, uh, a sea change. Maybe this is an inflection point or something. And so maybe 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 that's true. Maybe it's not. Um, and maybe there will be a similar thing that happens in um, in in the baseball voting. I don't know what that would be or how it would work, or, or and I don't know that there's like a direct analogy. But it did feel like at that moment um, th- th- that something had changed, and so I wonder if there will ever be a moment in the in the Hall of Fame voting where it feels like something changes in the in the way that. But I guess the, a better analogy would be. You know, let's point to like Zach Grinke winning that Cy Young Award when he only right, won 16 right. games. And then, by the way, Felix Hernandez winning one where he only won, what was it, 12 games or whatever it was. Yeah. And Jacob deGrom winning when he's only won 12 or 13 With games 10, or whatever. Yeah. 10, yeah. yeah. So like the, it does seem like there is this different way um, that that, uh, that things like that are happening in, in the game um, in the awards that are given out year to year, and maybe there will be a similar kind of adjustment in some direction or another. I don't know which direction it would be or what it would look like, but maybe the sort of like older guard of the BBWAA filters out, and a new and a, a really new 
guard kind of filters in. And I and again, I don't even know what I'm thinking that would do. I don't know what does that mean. Does right. Todd does Todd Helton and Gary Sheffield do those guys like that or Andrew Jones, you know, suddenly get uh, elected? Do we stop caring about PEDs? Do we care more about PEDs, you know, to those guys? Like what he, here's a question for you. Next year, we have this same mess. The exact same mess. Right. All of these guys are still on the ballot. Right. Schilling's in his last year. We've still got Bonds, Clemens. We've still got uh, Manny Ramirez. We've still got all these guys. And we add Ortiz and A Rod. <laughs> like those are that's what's coming. Though that so take this mess and add Ortiz and A Rod. What tell me what happens next year? Look into your crystal ball uh, and tell me what happens next year. Well, I think this is exactly where I, th- I think this was going. By the way, uh, the the sweet moment that was the Oscars when uh, when when uh, Moonlight uh, won uh, over over La La Land, <clears throat> then Green Book came along. So I, I'm That's not. Right. I'm it not wasn't. 100% it didn't sure. change everything. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't change everything. You know, here's 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 my question. I will throw this out as sort of a bigger question because I think next year is one way or another going to be a landmark year for the Hall of Fame and, okay. and for the direction of the Hall of Fame. Because, as you mentioned, look, Kurt, let's leave Kurt Schilling out of it. Kurt Schilling is his own thing. I know he wants to throw himself into the middle of this. It's not. He is his own thing. And, and whether or not he wants to see it this way, the reason that Kurt Schilling is not in the Hall of Fame is because he's a loudmouth, hate-driven person who, who is out there pushing these things Every single day. He's not stopping. It's not like it's something from the past. This is something he does every single day. And whatever it is right now, 29% of the, of the vote, uh, of the people that are voting, they, they don't want to vote for him. They're not going to vote for him. That's it. That's the reason he's not in the hall of fame. Nothing else. He can, he can blame everyone else. He can talk about how he's being persecuted. He can, he can, he can scream and yell about how, uh, uh, these guys don't know anything about baseball, even though 71% voted for him. He can talk about all that all he wants. It's so simple with him. It's simple with him. He is the one that 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 uh, thought it was awesome that somebody wants to, you know, uh, hang journalists. He's the one that, that was out there on a daily basis doing all these things that we don't need to even go over. Uh, it's not politics. It's It's division. It's divisiveness. That's his deal. So he's separate. So I'm, I'm, I don't even want to talk about him anymore. Right. Talking about Bonds and Clemens, they're on their last year on the ballot. Okay. Next year, A Rod comes on the ballot, and as you mentioned, David Ortiz. Now, David Ortiz has sort of a a little bit a weird connection to PEDs because he he allegedly tested positive. Uh, in the 2003 testing, which was not supposed to be made public. Supposed to be anonymous, that's right. Supposed to be anonymous and was not supposed to identify individual players either. Not only was it supposed to be anonymous, the whole point of it was just to see if they were going to reach the threshold that was going to trigger testing. That was it. It was right. not, it was It was all a bulk of, of players. It was, it was about getting to 5% or 8% or whatever it was. It had nothing to do with individual players. So the fact that that was illegally leaked um, and and the fact that he denies it and the fact he never tested positive again makes it a very odd and weird connection. I mean, I know there are people that are going to take it as far as they want to take it, but it's not the direct line that is Bonds and 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 uh, and certainly A-Rod. Um, but here he, he's going to be on the ballot next year. I think he's going to get elected. 
even really? with this connection. I do. I, I really believe he's going to get elected. I don't know that he will. He might not, and he might not first ballot. But I, I think he was he was too popular, too successful, too great in the postseason, too too much of sto- a part of the of story of baseball. And I know that Bonds and Clemens are too, but not quite in the same way that that Poppy is. I mean, he's he is the force behind you know that whole. Red Sox thing. And, and, and so I think he's going to get elected, but let's say he doesn't. Okay. A-Rod comes on the ballot. What is A-Rod going to get? Is A-Rod going to immediately step on the ballot and get in that 60, 55, 60% range that Bonds and Clemens did? Because if he does, then that means Bonds and Clemens fall off the ballot. And for the next nine years, a-Rod is on the ballot and A-Rod <laughs> is going to continue to be in public. He's going to continue to be a, a broadcaster. He's going to continue to, 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 to win over a lot of people, I think. And you're going to get A-Rod in the hall of fame, but not bonds. I mean, is, is that a joke? God, I mean, it's is that, such is, a mess. <laughs> oh, it's such a mess. I mean, think about it. Like there is essentially no difference between those three guys in a certain way, like obviously there's differences in their specific careers or whatever, but they are three as players you're saying. as, as players, right? They are guys, right. three who, all-time greats, three, uh, three, three, three all-time greats players yeah. and three yes. guys who all have the same story, which is if you try to figure out when they started using PEDs and they all obviously did, you have right. that argument where you're like, well, their career to that point was a hall of fame career. So even right. if you ignore right. all the PEDs, you should still vote them in. The, that argument applies to all of them. I mean, A-Rod was hitting, uh, you know, was, had some of his best years, like, you know, in, in Seattle and Texas. Oh, when he uh, was like 20. When yeah, he was like t- between 20 and 26. Like, right. And, and was playing gold glove shortstop and was, you know, was, you know, he signs that enormous contract and wins the MVP on a last place team and is hitting 50 home runs and just being a monster every single year. And then at some point he starts using PEDs and basically he doesn't get better. He just sort of keeps staying the same. Right. Uh, And then, but, but then like their PED usage is so like clumsy. He described it in that famous interview he did as Mickey mouse stuff. Um, which yeah. was his attempt to downplay it and make it seem like it actually wasn't that big a deal. It was obviously way more than that, but it, it was incredibly sophisticated. And the stuff they were using was being engineered in a lab by a maniac, and they were just willy-nilly <laughs> ingesting it into their bodies as fast as they could. But but it's yes. like they but they all have that same story, which is they are generational players who had like wave one and then wave two of Hall of Fame careers. And wave one, if they had if they had suffered a terrible injury or something and been knocked out halfway through their careers, they'd probably get in, even though they continue to play (laughs) at a very high level. But the A-Rod was banned from the sport for a year. Well, that's the thing. You know, it's just, how do you vote that guy in, but not Roger Clemens or Barry Bonds? I don't think you can. That's right. Well, and and I think there are a couple of things to say. One is there are those who out there, I mean, everybody seems to agree that in 1998, Barry Bonds decided to bulk up. Uh, based on sort of, you know, what he was seeing out there in the sport, McGuire and Sosa and all that. Uh, lots of people believe, most people I think believe, Clemens really started to bulk up right after he was, you know, sort of shoved out of Boston. Right. Uh, and, and the timing could be a little bit off, but it's generally in that range. I've heard people say that they think A-Rod always did, that A-Rod goes back to high school. I mean, I've heard people sure. say that. I don't know that it's true. Um, but here's the thing that I find 
well, there are two things that I find uh, um, to be to be difficult. One is whatever you want to say about Bonds and Clemens, there was no drug testing. They didn't fail a drug test. There right. was no drug testing. Uh, the sport was absolutely, uh, I think, I mean, a huge percentage, whether that's 10% or 70%, uh, it's a substantial percentage of players were uh, were using uh, steroids at the time because there was no drug testing and there was the entire, no pressure to not use it. The league was absolutely hear no evil, see no evil about, about PEDs. Hear no a, evil, a, see no 100%. evil. hundred percent. They knew it was happening. They kind of liked it. Home runs were up. They were happy. Everybody was making money. <laughs> McGuire and Sosa were knocking records down right and left. They yes. were, they were, it was a, if it wasn't an encouragement, it was a tacit encouragement of all of that behavior. And yes. so the idea of suddenly turning That's around right. and holding it against them and acting like this is outrageous that we have no, <laughs> we can't allow this sort of, I mean, it's absurd. That that's, that's obviously in a big picture way, the craziest thing about all of this is that the league yes. basically allowed it to happen. Right. But that is not true of A-Rod, right? So right. by the time A-Rod started, First of all, there was testing. Not only was there testing, there was now this sense around the game. Hey, this can this this might ruin the sport. Yeah, this, I mean, this is bad. We're <laughs> this this is this is really bad, right? And and he he was using in that time period, which I think has to be viewed differently. And when you test positively, uh, as he did, that has to be viewed differently. Well, did he test positive, or or was it more? That they just caught him. They that caught was, him, right? Yeah, it, we, that it, right. It, it was just it was, reporters. It was reporters tracking him to Miami. Right, and the, bi- and the biogenesis thing, right, yeah. and the whole biogenesis thing. But to the point where he literally was suspended from the sport for a year. So, look, A-Rod was an absolutely absurd player. Uh, he was an amazing player from the day he stepped on, you know, from his high school days. I mean, he was the number one overall pick. He was, by many accounts, the greatest prospect ever to come out of high school. He's in the majors um, when he was 18. He was at 18 years old when he was in the majors. Exactly. And there were people who watched him on the field in high school and said, the guy could play in the major leagues right now. I mean, he was, <laughs> he was that kind of talent, but, but there is not even the slightest chance on earth that anybody could justify voting a rod in and not voting bonds. in. No. it's just, it's, it's literally, it's, it's absolutely. I mean, what, what a rod did is, is significantly worse. And, and, and he wasn't as good a player. I mean, you know, it's, you get both of those things. And that's the other question I want to ask you. So, so let's look at it this way. Cause you said something that, that, that I've been thinking a lot about lately. A-Rod, assuming A-Rod was, was clean through the early part of his, of his career, which is a nice thing to believe. And I want to believe that. Sure. Let's Cause believe he was it. such a wonderful player. Let's believe that we have decided to believe that he didn't get better when he used steroids, as you said, he, he was able to maintain, he might've gotten a little bit stronger, but he wasn't a better player when he, when he started using steroids, he was just as good a player as he got older. He stayed as good uh, a player as he always had been right. Clemens, you can make the same argument when Clemens started taking steroids. He, he had some amazing years. Those years in Boston were incredible, but they weren't, better or significantly better than he had been in Boston in his early years. He was, he was basically, it was a little bit of a fountain of youth for him. Um, but, but assuming we get the timing right, which is an assumption, um, he, he basically stayed the same. 
Bonds turned into a superhero. How is that possible? Bonds became a completely different player. Yeah. 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 He it, like, Was he it, using better stuff? I, I don't know. I think I've always thought that there was this weird thing that happened where it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Where like in, in those years, there was the year Bonds walked 232 times. Right. And so it was basically like they he got so good and was so scary that nobody pitched to him. And so he walked right. 232 times and like a hundred something were intentional, which is just ridiculous uh, because no one else was on that 120 team. 120 yeah. intentional. <laughs> just, just like, I mean, that that's, that's incredible. And so then it, so that it was this sort of like self-fulfilling prophecy where like no one pitched to him. So he knew that he was going to get walked and he basically narrowed the zone of the pitch he was looking for to like a, a baseball sized hole in the zone and he was like all right if i get that pitch i'll hit a home run and if i don't i'll walk and so it it just like it fed on itself it just it got more and more um it went more and more in that direction every every game until eventually it was like we know what's going to happen he's going to be one for he's going to be either oh for one with a home run and three walks or uh, uh or oh or like one for two with a home run and a long fly out and two walks. Those are the <laughs> right. two kinds of games he had. <laughs> so I don't, I mean, he was, again, you're talking about a guy who was already arguably the best player in the game, who sure. then who then became so huge and so, so powerful that he be, was like invincible. And then no one wanted to pitch to him because nobody pitched to him. He took the walk 232 times in a single season. <laughs> and, and when he got his pitch, he hit a home run. It was just this, like, it was this weird kind of like um like it just it fed on itself you know it just it just kept going uh in that direction i don't know why it didn't happen that way for a rod he's just he's a different kind of hitter uh he was you know every 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 one of those guys is different in some ways but you know the a rod in the in the 2001 alcs do you remember that in the in i think it was in game four was it game four i can't remember game oh no it was game i don't know a rod hit a home run uh, in that series or in one of those series in the year, it was either 2000 or 2001 um, where he, he was at Yankee stadium. It must've been, I'm going to look it up now, but he like, he was like 20 and the Mariners were in the playoffs and he hit like the, the, like the longest home run I've ever seen at Yankee stadium. It hit like yeah. the top of the left field foul. Yeah, pole. 2000. It was 2000. a 2000. Yeah. Yeah. And it like hit the top of the foul pole and it was just like, Oh, it was like, who is this monster? Who is this person that that um, that can do this at at at, you know, age 20 or whatever? Crazy. Um, and so that's, you know, like with everything else with PEDs, it's the saddest part of this whole thing is like and again, maybe he was using at the time, but he right. he just um, he just didn't have to do it. <laughs> didn't no. have to do it and i don't no. know and i don't know how you're right though i don't know how you vote for him he he has a had a little bit of like a reputation power wash now that he's like in the booth and he's married to j-lo so. and, and stuff I like that so. and maybe yeah. that will affect people but you can't you just can't vote for him and not bonds uh and and uh and clements i just don't know how you do that like uh, no you can't you can't and you can't ever have it where you vote him in Having not voted in Bonds and Clemens, I mean, that is, you know, that is, that, that's what I mean. That's why I'm saying it's going to be fascinating to see what happens with him. And and maybe it's a case where next year he gets 
45 or 50 percent of the vote, uh, Bonds and Clemens go up a little bit, but don't get enough to get in. And then all support for A-Rod collapses because nobody can nobody can justify voting for A-Rod when they didn't vote for 10 years, didn't vote for Bonds or Clemens. I mean, you just I don't see how you can justify it. I also don't fully see why Gary Sheffield, who admitted to using, although in a in a much smaller way, I think, uh, jumped and many Ramirez really didn't. Um, I guess Ramirez, I guess maybe that's maybe maybe that's a good sign that A-Rod will not get support because Manny Ramirez is is a guy who who tested positive after we started caring. Uh actually more than once yeah. tested positive. <laughs> <laughs> like eight times he tested positive. He was uh, after he was nothing if caring. not committed. Yeah. He he was he was gonna do what he wanted to do and he didn't really care what happened. But as a hitter, um I mean you know, I, I actually don't know why he isn't mentioned more often in that Bonds, uh, Clemens category because, as a hitter, I think he's he's I think he's a better hitter than Sosa, better hitter than than McGuire, better hitter than Palmero, better. I think he was the second best hitter who was going to be kept out of the Hall of Fame because of uh, because of PEDs. I think. Yeah, I think you're right. I just I, I'm I'm very interested. The the real test case for next year is Ortiz because. You know, when you're talking about these gradations of seriousness of, you know, who tested positive when or who didn't test positive right. but was caught, when were the when did the rules kick in, whatever. Ortiz's positive test, like you said, was was supposed to be anonymous, was leaked to someone somehow. He it denied time, that right? it happened. It was it was at a time he never tested that was two thousand three or something right or four. no no i mean new york times i think were the one that broke it i think right. when they they got that small list because i think sosa was on that list as well right and then and then all of the other you know he he was tested he used to complain about how often he was tested right. he was he tested, tested constantly like daily yeah yeah and and but also there's also the weird thing where he was almost only a dh which is no there's <laughs> right. no there's no pure dh in the in the uh in the hall of fame well edgar is now oh you know, right right, right pure but pretty close and then then there's the then there's the aspect of it where he was not just a great postseason hitter but an otherworldly postseason hitter he went 11 for 16 right. in a world series which, <laughs> which is still a, a stat i cannot uh, wrap my head around it's a it's a really interesting case and like all of this all of these um, thorny, impossible to untangle, woven strains of nonsense are all going to coalesce next year as we see what happens to A-Rod and what happens to Ortiz. Um, and it's going to be exactly the same kind of nightmare that that it is now. <laughs> and what's going to happen to A.J. Pruszynski when he gets on the ballot next year? Oh, I assume year? He's, he's unanimous. <laughs> he's, he's just in. He's just, he's just he's I mean, just a universally beloved player. Pierzynski. Everyone, everyone just loved the guy. <laughs> who, who, who doesn't love AJ? Right, exactly. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. It's gonna. I think it is gonna be really, really fascinating to see. Uh, I don't know if it'll be fascinating. It probably might just be utterly depressing. But yeah. it's gonna be. It's gonna be. Uh, uh, I don't know what's gonna happen uh, next year. And and I guess. I guess that's something. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of its 75th anniversary season. That's game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond, from iconic plays and arenas to the impact players have in the community. That's the NBA. That's game. Like in the NBA Finals when the Bucks had their backs against the wall, 
Drew Holiday steals the ball, pushes the break. Alley hoop to Giannis for an iconic slam. Seals game five and the eventual title. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. Today's episode is sponsored by the NBA and their quest to advance the game of basketball, grow the community, and impact culture. The league celebrates its teams, players, and fans across the past, present, and future as part of the 75th anniversary season. That's Game highlights pivotal moments on court and beyond. From iconic plays in arenas to the impact players have in communities, that's the NBA, that's Game. It's like Game 5 of the NBA Finals where I was lucky enough to be there. Bucks, Suns, in Milwaukee. I'm sitting kitty corner from Giannis Antetokounmpo as he rises up for that incredible alley-oop. Drew Holiday having stolen the ball from Devin Booker on the other side. Found Giannis in transition. Incredible stuff. That's the NBA. That's game. This is more than just basketball. It's what connects us all and keeps us coming back for more. That's the NBA. That's game. All right. Before we go on to our draft, um, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, well, the, the two things, actually. I think we should take a moment uh, because we did over uh, over um, text to each other. But uh, we didn't really talk about we, – we lost Henry Aaron uh, last week, and that was the 10th Hall of Famer in the last 12 months uh, to die. And, and not it's, – it's, it's really crazy. And not just, not just Hall of Famers, but, I mean, you know, Hank Aaron, Tom Seaver, Bob Gibson, Al Kaline. I mean, these are – these are, you know, I did the the list of. By the way, I have a book coming out as well, uh, uh, where I really, count, yeah, I know it's weird, uh, where I counted down the hundred greatest baseball players of all time, uh, and uh, and they are all on the list. And in fact, I'm working on that book now, uh, and and getting it ready for for publication this October first, and um, and I keep coming on players who died since I wrote the piece. God, that's Phil crazy. Negro. I mean, it's so sad. You know, I just wrote it uh, last year and, and it's so sad, but I think of all of the people to go, I mean, obviously Henry Aaron was the, was the icon. Uh, you know, he's, he's, you know, not only one of the five greatest players in the history of the game, he was somebody who represented the game in, in, in such an extraordinary way, somebody who dealt with the worst of America and, and, and not only, uh, you know, not only fought back and pulled through all of that, but uh, but I think you know tried throughout his 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 life to to stay hopeful about the future. I I I just I don't think you can say enough great things about Hank Aaron. No, it was a real blow. Like this one hit me hard. Um, yeah. And one of the interesting things about it, I think, is you know you he was always around. Like you you know anytime there was a big gathering of you know the greatest players ever like there was right. Hank Aaron and and you sort of were just like oh good Hank Aaron's here because he wasn't Willie Mays he wasn't like the say hey kid you know and he wasn't Joe DiMaggio who had that kind of constructed air about him and um but and you were like yeah it's a, Hank Aaron he's the home run he's the home run king everybody knows it there he is that's great but he he was <laughs> that's great his yeah. his playing style was sort of unflashy it was just yes. relentlessly Purposely. great and consistent uh and so you kind of took him for granted i think um and there was a little bit of reflection upon that i think when he died of like this was a guy like his his career is 
bananas. Um, I tweeted something <laughs> about this uh, that where, you know, if you look, he, he basically, he came to the majors, he started hitting home runs and he never stopped. Like that's yeah. the, he just, that's right. just like a, a drumbeat of excellence for his entire playing career. Um, but that only looking at that sort of misses the important story of Hank Aaron, which is that Hank Aaron bridged the two eras of baseball, which is basically pre Jackie Robinson and post Jackie Robinson. Now he You're didn't, right. he didn't get to the majors until 54 maybe or something right. or 50, right. something like that. But he played in the Negro leagues. He played for the Indianapolis clowns in the Negro leagues because when he turned 18 uh, and, and became like eligible to play baseball, the game still wasn't really integrated. It had been nope. five years since Jackie Robinson, but the game, it would be, you know, seven more years before the last team, my beloved racist Boston Red Sox, <laughs> would actually integrate. So he he played in the Negro Leagues. That is insane. Yes. Like that, that and, and to really understand what he meant to baseball, you can't just look at the fact that in 1974 – when he was closing in on Babe Ruth, he was getting racist death threats for breaking boxes this, and boxes, bo- just yeah. endless amounts of uh, of death threats. You have to you have to go back to the beginning and understand that when he started playing, the game wasn't even fully integrated, That's and right. that he played in the he had to play essentially in the Negro leagues before he could get to the majors. And and it's you have to take the entirety of his career to truly understand what a remarkable person he was, and the battles that he had to fight on a daily basis, starting with the most basic battle, which is most of baseball didn't want him there. Uh, and that to me is the, is the big picture thing that, that, that we lost with him is he was that guy who bridged, he was still alive and, but he bridged the, the, the era of non-integrated segregated baseball all the way through breaking the most hallowed record in the game. Uh, and the last thing I want to say about this is, you know, everybody has seen the famous, uh, video where he hits the home run that breaks Ruth's record and he's running around and around third, two guys run out of the stands. Right, as he crosses second base, yeah. Can you imagine how scary that must have been for him as a guy who had received thousands of racist death threats that at the moment you achieve the thing you're doing, the the thing that you've been trying to do, you break this hallowed record set by the most famous white baseball player of all time (laughs) and two guys come running out of the stands toward you like, I don't know how he didn't punch both of them in the face and run away. <laughs> like, I, I, it is, it is, it's, it's sort of this weird, like, reflective moment where you understand the intestinal fortitude that the guy had to have in order to do everything that he did from the time he was 18, playing for the Indianapolis Clowns, all the way through that moment and beyond, that the world actively hated him, that America actively hated him. And and wanted and wanted him to fail, and in in sort of staunch defiance of that, he just kept succeeding. He yeah. and he succeeded better than anyone had at the most kind of famous thing you can succeed at in baseball. And I, I really like, I, I really mourn the loss of that guy who um, who we all kind of have always in at least in my lifetime. I was born right around the time he retired. Uh, and I, I feel I couldn't help but feel like even though I've read a lot about him and thought a lot about him, I can't help but feel that even I took him for granted and that we shouldn't do that with guys like that because they went through stuff that the rest of us can only 
can only, you know, um, um, can barely imagine uh, going through. Yeah. No, look, there are a couple of things that I would say about that. One is, um, I think the fact that he did play such a, a non-flashy game, you know, his famous quote was that he always said, if, if I could only go to one game in a year, I wouldn't come see Hank Aaron play. Uh, because I'm not going to, you know, do anything in that one game that's going to blow your mind. But if I could go watch one series, I would go see Hank Aaron. And I think, I think that's right. I think that he, he took time to appreciate he, because of the way he played, he was not flashy. Uh, You know, his hat didn't fly off the way it did for, for, uh, for, for Willie Mays. He didn't hit you know, gigantic tape measure home runs the way Mickey Mantle did. He was just this wonderfully consistent force every single year. And and there's never been anyone like that. The second thing I would say is uh, I do have a little insight into those two guys who ran on the field because I did a story on them. Oh, did you really? Uh, yeah. Uh, they're both, they were high school kids uh, in Georgia. And uh, I found them and I found them. This is, I did this story like in 92. So, I mean, or, or maybe it was 94. Maybe it was in the anniversary, the 20th anniversary, maybe. Um, but I found those kids. They weren't kids anymore at that point. And, you know, they it was truly, truly a, a, a high school hijinks thing. I mean, they, they like before the game said, wouldn't it be funny if we ran on the field? And then it happened. And then they kind of looked at each other and they're like, let's go. And they just went and ran on the field. They loved Hank Aaron. I right. mean, they 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 literally went on there. But the most, one of the most chilling and beautiful things uh, I ever heard uh, Mr. Aaron say when I interviewed him, and I, I was lucky enough to do that a few times, I asked him about those kids uh, when I wrote that story. And I said, you know, he, he didn't, you know, he and he said many times, he didn't even kind of remember. Like he... He he was he was in such a such a fog of relief in the middle of that of that trot that he barely remembered those kids even running on the field. Hmm. But I asked him like, well, why weren't you scared? I mean, you know, you had gotten a million you know threats and 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 you knew. I mean, it, it was that that whole evening was filled with tension. You know, why why were you able to? to how why did you not sort of freak out a little bit? <clears throat> And he said, and I just thought this was so interesting. He said, I, I, I just knew that it was going to be fine. Like, I just knew hmm. like something about their energy or, or, or his own sort of sense of, of what was happening around him. Is he just like, I just, I just knew. And you watch him. It's exactly right. I mean, you can see it in the way he runs. He just, he kind of like shoves him off, like kind of get away. Yeah. But not, but not like I'm, you know, in, in any way afraid of what's going to happen. It's much more like, uh, come on, it's stupid. Get off the field, you know, kind of thing. And I, it, it is, you know, there are so many things that speak to, to his character, but, uh, but that to me was just, stunning yeah just stunning you know so yeah. it's a it's a real the, it, 10 hall of famers in a year is astonishing and they've all hurt you know tom Seaver hurt uh yes. and, and necro oh, hurt gibson. And gibson hurt a lot gibson was my uncle jeff's favorite uh baseball player but like hank aaron man i mean that's no, that's he's a, 
it's different level. It's Mount Rushmore. Like it's yes. it, it, yes. in it, in it, you know, um, it was a real loss and it, and, uh, I'm. I got to go back and read that story you wrote. Now I don't know how I missed that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah well, that's because I wrote it for the Augusta Chronicle in 1994 or whatever. That so could be the reason. I yeah. <laughs> I don't know that anybody's read that story, but uh, <laughs> but uh, it was uh, what a man. So um, so the other thing I want to talk about before we do go to our quick draft is uh, just very briefly I want to talk a little bit about the NFL. Obviously, the Super Bowl is coming up next week. Uh, maybe we'll have time later at some point. We'll probably text about it. Uh, but this past week we had one of the weirdest for me, one of the weirdest experiences I've had as a sports fan, uh, came at the end of the, of the, uh, NFC championship (laughs) game. And you and I kind of went through it together a little bit, but it's at the end of the game. I mean, there's what there's, you know, a little bit more than two minutes left. The Packers are are in position to score what what could be the game tying touchdown if they get the two point conversion. They don't get anything on first, second, third down. There there was questions about whether or not Aaron Rodgers should have run the ball or whatever. But but regardless, it's fourth and goal from the eight yard line. There's less than two minutes left. I mean, there's about two minutes left. We're closing in on the two minute, uh, um, you know, warning. And I mean, like literally like two ten or two oh eight left. Yeah. And they're down eight points in the AFC Championship game against Tom Brady and and the Bucs. And it's it's not just that they went out there and kicked a field goal, which is which is weird enough. Um, it's like it's like it wasn't even a decision. It like like the announcers didn't like at first like talk about it. Like it just it just sort of suddenly there was the kicker on the field when you're watching it on television, and I'm like. In my head, it like makes no sense. I'm what I'm looking at. I'm like, did did the TV blank out and and they're kicking an extra point? Are they are they? Uh, is there some sort of weird math thing that I'm not understanding here? What was your reaction when they went and decided to kick that field goal at the end of that game? It was insane. Well, the first thing that I thought was like uh, was I I hesitated in my outrage for a second because. In this world of advanced analytics, we've all been in the position of seeing a coach do something and going like, that makes sense. And then later realizing, oh, it didn't make sense at all. Or the <laughs> right. reverse, right? right. We've, like reverse. Where it's like, actually, he, that was the right choice. Or actually, that was the wrong choice. So I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to pass judgment until I can figure this out. But then very quickly, you're like, oh, yeah, no, that's the wrong call. Which makes sense, right? Because let's say every every the, the popular thing to say was, even if you score a touchdown, you still need the two-point conversion. Okay, fine. However, if you score the touchdown and don't get the two-point conversion, all you then need is a field goal to win. <laughs> right, that's and right. And if you kick the field goal, you then need a touchdown to win. So you're setting yourself up for... Th- there's there's a lot of variables here, but it definitely seems like in a world where you have to score twice, which is the world you are creating by kicking the field goal, you are now... You're putting the onus on getting a touchdown instead of getting a field goal, which is like, right. well... You know, and obviously a a 30 yard field goal is a better bet than an eight yard touchdown. But still, you are you are declaring that you're you have to score again and it has to be a touchdown. Right. The second thing is, is that whatever the probability is at that moment of converting on fourth and eight from the eight, like that probability is the result of thousands of situations uh, over thousands of games 
with thousands of quarterbacks. That's right. And in this case, you are not what you are not the median team. <laughs> no, you're not. No. You are the team with the best quarterback and right. at least one of the best wide receivers in the game. Right. And you have to think to yourself, all right, if there's a 27% chance that we convert uh, a fourth and eight from the eight, I've got to assume with Aaron Rodgers, it's at least six to eight points higher than that. Yes. It's got to oh, be, absolutely. right? Because if you think of the bell curve of of talent, you're on the extreme far end of the talent. Um, you know, that, that 27% likelihood or whatever it was, also includes times when like Rob Johnson was playing for the Buccaneers in the <laughs> late nineties and throwing to no one. So right. th- to me, it's like what we have seen, what, what was surprising about it is if Mike McCarthy had still been managing the team, you'd be like, well, this is what you get. This is my Mike McCarthy move, but it's the floor is supposed to be this new breed who understands these things better. And what we have seen time and time and time again in the playoffs and even in the regular season was the guys who are aggressive and go for it are rewarded. They just are like when, yes. when, when, yes. um, you know, Chad Henney threw to Tyree kill on fourth and one against the Browns. Like right. that's a very, Browns, very, right? very risky play. And look, you can get two yards in the NFL. And all of these guys have started doing these things. Like when it's fourth and one and you're on your own 42, just go for it. You can get a yard and go if, for it. Yeah. And, exactly. and, and so it was, what was shocking about it was, wasn't just the choice it was the choice being made with that quarterback in that situation by that coach in that in that scenario I it was just so confusing it was just endlessly confusing and you know and by the way also you are not facing a like a rookie quarterback right you're facing Tom Brady who right. isn't the same right. Tom Brady he was 10 years ago or 20 years ago, or whatever, however, whenever you want to measure him by 50 yeah, years ago, right. 100 years ago. But <laughs> he is at the very least a guy who is not going to be rattled by the situation no. and is going to understand how to manage the game. And, you know, on first down, they 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 made a mistake uh, returning that kickoff. There was like 208 left and their returner yes. slid down. Uh, and it was like two Oh two left on the clock. And I was like, you moron, just run around for two more <laughs> seconds, get through the, get through the timeout. You just gave exactly. them another timeout. And yet, so Brady comes out, he runs the first play and they get nine yards. And then LaFleur does something really smart. He just jumps off sides instantly yes. because he knows that they're going to get that next first down. So he figures like before any time runs off the clock, give them a first down and let's start over and we'll yes. use our time, which is a really, really advanced metric kind of a thing to do. It's the kind of thing that, you know, Vrabel does in Tennessee all the time. It's the kind of thing that Belichick would do or Andy Reid would do. The guys who are the more advanced thinkers. And when he did that, I was like, well, where was this? Where was this a second ago? Like if you're that kind of a coach, why are you? I mean, I just I don't get it, man. And I, I really the craziest stat that I heard out of all of the Brady and you and I were, I was sending you Brady stats. Cause every time he does this, I, <laughs> there's a whole new raft of Brady stats, but the craziest one I heard on Dan Lebetard show, which is that, which is that uh, Aaron Rodgers and Tom Brady have now won the same number of NFC championship games. It's absurd. <laughs> it's absurd. And it's, it's just like, it, you can't help but feel, I fe- personally feel like Rodgers was, um, was screwed out of some some potential Super Bowl appearances. Like at 2012, right. I think, and, and maybe 2014 or 15, there were situations where he got all the way to the championship game or close to it and, and just a series of 
either roster problems or, or, or clock mismanagements or whatever, you would say like, man, he should have played in more Super Bowl. Like I should have played in more Super Bowls. He's maybe the greatest quarterback ever until Mahomes uh, <laughs> plays like two more years. Right, uh, right. But in this case, uh, I've never seen one as clear cut. Like if you give the ball, this is the other thing, right? You give the ball to Aaron Rodgers in that situation and you go for the touchdown. If you don't get it, who's, who's upset? Who <laughs> who's angry at you? Like who That's right. Who who says you made the wrong choice? Like putting the ball in the it's like if LeBron takes the last shot and misses it. You, no one is angry at 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 the coach of at Frank Vogel. You know, everyone's <laughs> like, "Yeah, that's what you do. You give the ball to your best player and you ask him to make a play at the most important moment of the game." And I just it is truly truly shocking and baffling and I will never understand it. Yeah, I like I say the way that it laid out, you know, because like I say, it wasn't like they, I mean, of course they didn't want to waste a timeout there, but it wasn't like they called timeout and thought about it and decided, like, they just sent the field goal unit out. Like, like he had already decided on third down, hey, if we don't get it, we're going to kick the field goal here, which I'll tell you what, I am, of course, a huge, huge fan and believer in advanced metrics and advanced, you know, thought, particularly in baseball, but in football as well. But I got to tell you, I think the people that are talking about the the percentages of both moves are really missing a, a, like an obvious point, which is along the lines of what you said, which is, first of all, those percentages do not take into account that you have Aaron Rodgers and they do not take into account that you're facing Tom Brady. I mean, I think those are both really big points. But I think the second part of it is, I think you have to ask yourself, okay, how are we going to try to win this game? What is like, all right, I here we are at this moment. We're down eight points. We're on the eight-yard line. There's basically, they lucked into getting the two-minute warning. Essentially, the other team was going to get the ball at the two-minute warning if, if they had not just fallen down on the on the kick return. Right. Um, there's basically two minutes left. We have three timeouts, but they have Tom Brady, and, and they... they they will only need to get two first downs essentially to beat us uh, where we won't even get the ball back. If they don't, if we, if somehow you're the Packers and we do stop them, well, we got to go whatever it is, 80 plus yards, you know, depending on how good the punt is, we got to go 75, 80 yards and score a touchdown. Right. With no timeouts. Which, with no timeouts. And you're telling me I'm going to be in better position than, than fourth and goal from the eight. Like you dream of being at fourth and goal from the eight when that's basically the situation you're facing. Right. So I think that that to me was the point that I think too many people miss, which is I want you to play out in your mind how you're going to win this game. There is no conceivable way you can play out scenarios in your mind that are going to be significantly better than Hey, we got one shot. We're at the eight yard line with the best quarterback, the best receiver. Let's go. This is how, this is it. And if we don't make it again, way better position. Uh, even then I think, because now they've got the ball at the eight yard line. And if you're going to try to stop them, at least you're going to have a shorter field, hopefully yeah. to, to, to go. I, I think about the best, I, the best case scenario that you're facing um, to get the ball back would be, there's maybe a minute, 45 or a minute 40 right. left and you, and you have 40, no timeouts, yeah. right? If you get the ball back with a minute 40, no timeouts on your own 35 or something right. or 40, which is where you, um, which is you where hope you to hope it. to get yeah. it. 
Yeah. You like uh you have a I think a better chance of getting a touchdown than if you get the ball on your own 15 or something. Right. Like right. you're giving them you're basically if you're kicking off you're basically giving them the ball at their 30. So you're losing 22 yards or maybe between between 15 and 25 yards of field position and you still need the same result. And it's just exactly. I don't and I know that if you kick the field goal, the touchdown wins you the game. I get that. Right. Like that's right. clearly what he was thinking is like we don't need we don't need a two point conversion uh, if we if we kick the field goal and then score a touchdown. But I just think that you have to you have to feel like if you stop them, if you go for it, you have a the chance to tie the game to get within two points or to tie the game right now. Plus the advantage if you do, if you fail of better field position than you will in all likelihood get it when you if you kick if you kick the field goal and kick off. So you can't tell me that still needing to score a touchdown, you're better off with 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 worse field position uh and no chance to actually tie the game in that on that in that moment. Like it's just it's just bananas. It doesn't it I don't I just don't get why you wouldn't give the the arguably the greatest quarterback of all time a guy with f- more than 400 touchdown passes and fewer right. than 100 interceptions statistics uh, are insane yeah. absolutely insane yeah and you have Devonte adams who is whose release off the off the line was being praised all like the guy can get open within eight yards very easily like I and and you have a quarterback who moves incredibly well out of the pocket. Like roll him out. Like get your guys moving all over the field. Run a, yeah. run twelve crossing patterns in front of him. Like <laughs> just I I just I, I I don't understand why you don't take the shot. It's just so weird. It's very it's, very it's, weird. And it, and it you know it maybe that might be it for Aaron Rodgers. Aaron Rodgers might be leaving football. Like the last thing that happens in his career may have been that they pulled him out of the game with a chance to tie the game and sent in a guy to kick a field goal and he never got the ball back. Never got the ball back. I I, I don't know how you explain that to Aaron Rodgers the next day. Like, I don't. I mean, you can say what you want to the media and, and you can talk about ad- advanced metrics and you can talk about pe- having a better chance, this reason, that reason. All that's fine. But you got to look Aaron Rodgers in the eye and say, yeah, I didn't trust you to score that touchdown there. Yeah. I, I felt I felt we had a better chance uh, kicking and hoping for like a long, you know, uh, I, I like I say, I you and I had a, a, a million years ago when we did this podcast after the the Seahawks, uh, you know, Patriots Super Bowl, where, where obviously that was controversial when when the Seahawks didn't uh, run the ball up the middle from right at the goal line and through the interception and lost the game. And you and I had a long conversation about that, and we both thought that was also a very bizarre pick. But you could see what they were thinking, yeah. at least. They felt like they had a good matchup. That's They were wrong, but they felt like, hey, with the people we had on the field, people they had on the field, our best chance to score the touchdown was to throw the ball there. We have one of the great quarterbacks ever uh, back there, somebody we trust implicitly. And you're like, okay, I can see that. I don't see this. I don't even see the other side of this. Yeah, in that case, also, you can say what you will about the call, and as everyone who follows football has a (laughs) hundred times, but he actually had the explanation. It was like, look, we had one timeout. If we ran the ball and got stopped, we would have had to call the timeout, and then they would have essentially known we were throwing. So we thought we would take advantage of the fact that they didn't know what we were going to do on that play, 
yeah. they would maybe assume we were going to run Marshawn Lynch because everyone in the world would have run Marshawn Lynch, <laughs> but we would catch them by surprise. It's not, it's, it's, it's gambly and risky, but it's not, it's not, um, it's not like you can't understand the idea right. behind it. In this case, right. I cannot understand the idea behind it. You're that's right. right. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. Does this sound familiar? You've got one device that lets you catch the game live, another that lets you stream your favorite shows, you're watching sports highlights on your phone, and you've got your neighbor's best friend's login <laughs> for the good stuff. Well, I want to tell you about a simple way to get all that entertainment you love without the hassle, and a great way to finally get your TV together. It's called Direct TV Stream, and it brings your live TV and on-demand favorites together like never before, so you can watch your favorite sports, movies, and shows all in one place. That means no more juggling remotes and no need to buy another device ever again. And the best part, there's no annual contract. Yes, no annual contract. So get rid of the clutter and the confusion and get your TV together with Direct TV Stream. You can learn more at directtv.com. That's directtv.com. Compatible device required. Content varies by package. This episode is brought to you by BetMGM. Sign up today with BetMGM, the exclusive betting partner of The Athletic, and get a $1,000 risk-free first bet. Plus, get a free three-month subscription to The Athletic. Just sign up at BetMGM.com slash TheAthleticPod, that's P-O-D, to take advantage of this special offer from the kings of sportsbooks. That's BetMGM.com slash TheAthleticPod, P-O-D. New customer offer, paid in bonus dollars. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Cue the disclaimer. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia only. Excludes Michigan disassociated persons. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, Nevada, and Virginia. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and West Virginia. And 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. In Tennessee, call or text the red line at 800-889-9789. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana. Promotional offer not available in Nevada. All right, time for our draft, and we're we're I think hitting a, a new low uh, with our draft. That's the goal. Although, That's the goal every week. Every week, we're just trying to hit a new low. We are drafting uh, sort of in honor, I think, of of uh, of what all of us are going through. We are drafting places to sit. That's right. Is that is that is that correct? Mm-hmm. Is there any any more explanation nope, needed just, than we, that? We've all been doing a lot of sitting for the last year. And uh, sitting has become an important part of all of our lives. And so we're drafting places to sit. Places we like to sit. That's places it. we like to sit. Yeah. And you're going you, it, to, it's your, it's your world. So we're, we're going we're gonna to let you go first. Uh, with my first pick, I select in front of a fire. Um, so it's right now uh, is my favorite time of year in Los Angeles because it's, uh, it's cold. It's the only there's right. like two months a year. Coldish. January, February, where it's cold-ish. It got down to 41 Cold-ish. degrees the other night. It was fantastic. Nice. We also go up to uh, a place in the mountains um, occasionally where it gets legitimately cold, where it gets snow. And up there, there's a fireplace. I'm a I'm a a proud, as you might know, New England native. And any New England native worth his or her salt uh, knows how to build a fire, knows how to keep a fire stoked. Um, sure. I grew up with uh, uh, building fires all the time, and I've been able to recapture that old glory uh, by building fires in our fireplace and sitting in front of a roaring fire 
and uh, and like reading a book in silence is one of the true great joys in life. Now, I have to note, it's not you shouldn't do it that often. It's not very good for the environment. It's like it's very toxic. <laughs> the smoke is toxic and awful. Uh, whether it's gas or or wood burning, it's a it's it's a thing that I have a certain amount of guilt about because you're not supposed to really do it. But man, is it great! It's just great, and uh, I've. I've been reading uh, way more than I have in the average year just because we've been locked in our houses and haven't had a chance to uh, go out as much. And sitting in front of that fire and reading a book is uh, is bringing me an enormous amount of like old white guy joy. That's it's first of all, it is joyous to sit there's be in front of a fire. Now, are we talking about a fireplace? Yes, or we're talking about like an outdoor. fire. No, I'm talking about a fireplace. What do you think of like outdoor fire? I'm like fine with it, but it doesn't like it. It's not quite the same. There, there, there is also it's not as cozy. No, it's not as cozy. There is better. Like kids can make s'mores in right. in front of a fire right. pit. There is, there is, and it's it's more like if you have people over, which of course we never do because uh, you can't because uh, everyone will die. Um, you, but it is nice to sit outside in front of a in front of like a fire pit or whatever you want to call it. It's it's more communal, I think, uh, in certain ways, but. I'm talking like fireplace, living room fireplace, and in the classic New England sense of the word. Yes, yes. I didn't even know that they had fireplaces in in Los Angeles. Yeah, a lot of houses do. I mean, some of the older houses, you know, go back to the what's old for LA is like the teens or twenties, and so right. I think it was before there was, you know, there was there was no such thing as central heat. So you know, at yeah. night it does get down into the forties, and you would have to you know, heat your home in a certain way. So yeah. a lot, most houses have fire. Most houses built around that have a lot of fireplaces. They just never get used. We never use, the only time we use our, our main house's fireplaces, like on Christmas morning, sometimes we'll get like a, uh, a Duraflame and just throw it in there just for, <laughs> just for appearances. It's pretty sad. Um, it is pretty sad. The Duraflame is not, it, it's not sad. It's not, it's nothing. That's not, it's, no, it's, uh, it's no. lame. Uh, it is really lame. Yeah. That's a, that's an excellent pick. I, I, I do, Love, uh, you know, just kind of getting into like just comfortable clothes, maybe the slippers that we have talked about and uh, and and just sit in front of a fire and read. I think that's a great thing. All right. With my first pick, I am going to choose something that is is very specific to covid. Uh, but I have I must admit that I have gained a new appreciation for it. I I kind of have come to enjoy sitting in my car. So so here's the thing. Obviously, my daughter plays tennis. She is she is on her high school uh, tennis team. Uh, she is uh, a, a sheer delight to watch play tennis. And but you can't watch tennis. You can't be you know even even though they can play because that is a social distance sport and they do a, a nice job with that. Uh, you're not allowed to watch. You're not allowed to actually go unless you sit in the car huh. and and sit in your own car and watch. So. I watched my daughter have a, a wonderful tennis season through the front windshield of of our car, uh, and uh, and I gotta say it wasn't great. Of course, I would much rather have been outdoors and, and watching her there, but I've kind of gotten used to it, and and I have I have sort of made peace. Uh, I I our car is is comfortable, and and uh, I've I've kind of become used to that. So I have. You know, there there are, are times now that I will sit in the car and and uh, and I I'm okay with it. So it's it's not something I would have known and not something I would have 
ever wanted to go through, but uh, I am at peace with sitting in my car. Car was on my list. It's a good pick. And I think that in the when you're looking for things that you maybe have a greater appreciation for in this time, um, they they obviously pale in comparison to all of the the millions of horrible things that have happened. <laughs> right. But I kind right. of weirdly have a new appreciation for being in my car because uh, yeah. something as simple as getting going to like the grocery store or Rite Aid or something suddenly feels like an incredible adventure. <laughs> and the, the, when weird. I go to work, like the, I'm uh, my work is fairly close to my home. Um, but it, it is nice. You get into your car and you put on a podcast or some music that you can listen to. And, um, and it, it suddenly, instead of feeling like just a part of the boring backdrop of your everyday life, it now feels a little more special and it's a little nicer and it's a little more pleasant. Um, yeah, that was on my list. That was my, that yeah. was, yeah, I think you, I, I think you may have reached as your number one pick. There might be a reach <laughs> there, but, uh. But it's it's definitely uh, you, Daniel Jones did a little bit, but, uh, but yeah, well, maybe, maybe. But I feel I feel I Belichicked it. I felt like that was I wanted car, and and I was wanting to go get it. All right, and, fair and enough. I feel good about that. Um, uh, for my second pick, I'm going to do. It's a similar thing, uh, actually, but uh, I'm going to pick on an airplane. Um, I've only been uh. on an airplane, I think, twice since this started and it's not like I was a you know world traveler before that but uh I only I've only taken one flight uh back and forth from LA since uh since last January or February whatever it was um and it was a little scary it was uh it was when my father-in-law passed away uh, back in the summertime and and I had to go to New York uh with my for the uh, for the service and it was a little scary because, you know, it was the first time I'd gotten on a plane. I had I wore like 11 masks and I, you know, I sat with my hands folded underneath my arms for the entire flight. But um, <laughs> everyone was on the same wavelength. Everyone was being very responsible on my flight and everyone you could everyone was wearing a mask and everyone was very careful and everything else. But and the this sort of process of of being on a plane and having, I've always liked flying. I really enjoy it, yes. and I, and I actually work really well on planes, and I find them really, I find them really soothing. Um, and that flight was 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 like a weird. Uh, it's a thing I miss. I miss I miss sitting on planes. I don't want to do it all the time, um, but I I do miss it because there is something sort of calming. There's like a white a, a natural white noise machine that's playing all the time. I can sleep on planes. I can work really well on planes, and I I, I miss the um, the sort of solitude of it and the quietude of it in a way that I didn't think I would. But I find myself longing to get on a plane and just fly around somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Look, I again, I I think that is a, it's a little early for for the plane uh, for sitting on a plane uh, as as a thing, but uh, I I couldn't agree more in the sense of that I. I have not flown since since this really hit. So and you fly. You the, used to fly a lot. You're, I used to fly. I, honestly, I, I would take 60, 70 flights a year. Wow. I mean, I was on the road one hundred and sixty, one hundred and seventy days a year, and and so I was constantly on planes. And and I I generally like flying too. I I can sleep on planes. I I uh, I like working on planes. So I generally like flying too. It, it got old after a while, you know, especially not so much once you get on the plane, it's fine. It's all the, all the hassle to, to make that happen. Yeah. But I will tell you that our, our youngest daughter, um, like that's the biggest thing. One of the biggest things she misses is 
traveling, but not for her. It's like, of course, she wants to go to L.A. She wants to go to New York. She wants to she wants to go to cool places. But the process is like her favorite thing. She loves very few things as much as she loves being on a plane. She just loves that whole feeling, being looking out the window, watching a movie, just everything, you know, getting getting your peanuts and pretzels or whatever they give now. And <laughs> and she just loves it, just absolutely loves it. And and I got to say, I feel like that's a void in our lives, not getting to sit on planes. Yeah. So, so yeah, good. I'll, I'll say good pick. I'll say good pick. Um, with my second pick, I'm going to say uh, I, I like sitting in, I guess what you would call lawn chairs. Um, the, the, I would never, ever sit in a lawn chair before. Like I, I would say there were zero times, like, I guess if I would, if I was going to a football game, a high school football game or something and, uh, or, or something like that, where you would bring one of those, you know, foldable chairs maybe. But now, uh, it is almost the only time that that I get to see the neighbors is like every so often you know for a while there was once a week but now it's probably more like once or twice a month maybe um a few of our neighbors get together in our little we have a cul-de-sac here and in our little cul-de-sac everybody brings out their lawn chairs and we sit six seven eight feet apart and sort of catch up and it's like the only amount of socialization outside of our family that we even have I mean it's basically it and I've kind of grown to like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it's, I, I would prefer something more normal, but it's what we got. And, you know, those launchers, they've started to make those. Like, I remember them when I was a kid, they were like those cross pattern fabric things, but now they, they have, you know, they have cup holders and, and you kind of sink into them. They're pretty comfortable. So, so I'm going to say with my second pick, I'm going to choose lawn chairs. You can have them. I hate lawn chairs. <laughs> you don't have the right kind. That's your problem. It's possible. I just, I find them, I, I, I associate them with like hot, sticky weather and their plastic ah. is sticking to your, to your butt. And I, and I'm not into <laughs> it. You can, you can, you can have them. Uh, <laughs> I'll take them. Uh, I'm going to pick um, uh, on a couch, which I can't okay. believe is still available at, at the third pick. <laughs> Yeah, this is obviously it depends on the right kind of couch, right? Like there, some couches really are does. modern. Like if it's a very modern furniture, which is in vogue at least in California these days, it can be it can be really uncomfortable. Um, you know, with like a sort of weirdly angular kind of hard yeah. uh, surface or something. But a nice comfy couch where you're watching TV or you're in your office or whatever. I have two great couches in my house. One of them's in my office. One of them's in the living room. And the one in the living room is really comfy. Like you sink into it and it's got tons of pillows and we've got blankets all over the place so you can get <laughs> nice and cozy. And the one in my office is a little firmer and has good reading lights and is like, when I take a break from looking at my computer, I need to read something. I sit on the couch. I've got a great setup. And uh, and and I really have come to love both of them for two very different reasons. And I feel like the couch is an under, it's like, a th again, a thing we take for granted it's a very under if a, if it's good, it can be a very very underrated piece of furniture and a very underrated place to sit. Well, you're right. If you have the right couch, we have a terrible couch. I mean, this has been a big topic <laughs> of discussion for us and our family for about five years now. So we have this 
green sofa couch that that's like um you know it's 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 a it's a it's an angle right so there's like there's like uh, it's a it's basically a right angle so you have like this end where you can kind of lay down and it's fairly comfortable there where you can lay down but the rest of the couch it's all pillows so so you have no back support at all mm. you know you have to like really line up the pillows just right so that so that you have any kind of like back support and any kind of comfort um so it's terrible so i never sit on that couch it's like that's like yeah I, I think i think a great couch we are we are looking uh at some point to getting a great couch and i think if we could get a great couch it would be wonderful to for us to sit as a family uh but we just don't have that option now well we you, maybe it. some of this money you're making from this new book you got coming out you know <laughs> did you hear about I this heard did somewhere hear about somebody told me you were writing a book <laughs> But I am going to tell you in its place where I do sit all the time. It would have been my number one pick, except for I knew you were not going to pick it uh, at any point. We have two different recliners in this house that are absolutely staggeringly wonderful. So the first one is in our sort of what I guess you would call our library. It's where, where our books are. And it is like this big brown, lazy boyish, comfortable thing. That you just, it's ugly as as all get out, which is why my wife won't let it be anywhere but this little library nook that we have. But you just, you sink into it. You can put your feet up if you want. You don't have to because it's got this wonderful back arch support that is just glorious. You can fall asleep in it. You can read to it. It's just amazing. Just absolutely amazing. I will never get rid of it no matter how ugly it is. I will always find if we if we leave this house which we probably will at some point fairly soon and move to a small place after the girls go to college and we have like two rooms, I will still find a way to keep that that chair. And then the other one is we we kind of built out like this like I guess you would call it a movie room and uh somewhere along the way we got these recliners that are electric, like the electric ones that raise sure. your feet. Oh, those are so good. They're so good. They're so comfortable. And and for watching movies, they're just, they couldn't be more ideal. They're to the point where back in the old days when we used to have people come over, uh, we would, of course, invite them up to our, this movie room that we, we created. And they would sit on that couch and they would immediately ask like where did you get these and how can i get these and and i want these wow so they're they're just glorious so my third pick would have been my first pick but again i knew i could get it in the third round recliner yeah see the problem i have with recliners which i i don't have any recliners in my house and there's a reason which is that i fall asleep in them like if i recline forget it like if i'm watching right so (laughs) and when i'm sitting i i need to either be watching tv or reading that's right. generally why I'm sitting somewhere. And so if I get a recliner, forget it. Like whatever the, whatever the movie is or whatever <laughs> I'm watching, like I'm out. So I can't I can't do it. I can't get behind the recliner. Wow. Yeah, I mean Well, first of all, first of all, you are so underestimating the power of just falling asleep when you don't want to. That's the greatest feeling. Well, I but I just I I feel like I I would never actually do the things <laughs> that I want to be doing. Well, that is true. Yeah. That is true. But I like but they are adjustable in the sense of that I wouldn't necessarily fall asleep unless my legs were up, but. But as soon as your legs go up, you're done. Oh yeah, I'm out. I'm out. (laughs) I am so out. It's so wonderful. I but I love that feeling. I love the feeling of falling asleep to, to like stuff. Like I I like that. Well, I hate to tell you, but I've got the steal of the draft because my fourth pick, I'm going with 
at a baseball game. Oh, come yeah, on. Yeah, that's You're right. You're not even allowed to do that. Why? There are rules now? <laughs> come on. Uh, here's my here's my argument for this. Um, of all sporting events, baseball is the most in line with the concept of sitting. Because in, in football, you're generally standing the whole game. It's awful. If, if you're at a football game, you're, like, you're standing for a lot of it, especially if it's like a playoff game or something. Everyone's, it's like a rock concert. You're just on your feet. Uh, and you sit down maybe during timeouts or whatever to just give yourself a rest. But there's a lot of standing in football games. Yeah. Basketball, you do a lot of sitting. But the pace of basketball, which is great, I'm not complaining about it, it's, it's very fast-paced. It's very like the quarters are short. Things move really quickly. Baseball is the is the sport equivalent of sitting. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> it's really slow and it's really deliberate and it like rewards a person who is comfortable with sitting for three hours. And I am extremely comfortable with sitting for three hours. And so you can you you sit down because you're you're not when you're watching a baseball game. You're also just like you're taking in the atmosphere. You're analyzing the game. You're you're sort of like you're you're measuring the game and its ebbs and flows that are slow and very deliberate, uh, and so I really think that si- the baseball more than any other sport is conducive to the concept of sitting, uh, and and I really miss and have missed for a full year now and will continue to miss going to a baseball game, getting some food, getting some snacks, getting a bottle of water, sitting down and thinking I have nowhere to be. For until this game is over, except maybe the bathroom. <laughs> That's the only place I have to go. Uh, I and and it's it's a, I long for the ability to sit at in in Dodger Stadium or in a baseball stadium. I miss it terribly. Yeah, look, that's a great pick. First of all, there's that moment. Whether to me, I don't know how you feel about this, but like at a concert or at a football game, somewhat at a basketball game, this will still happen. Where everybody stands up in front of you and you're like, oh, we're doing this now? That, that's what I'm so... <laughs> can't can't yeah, we right. just all sit yeah. and enjoy this, right? I guess I got to get up, right? And and it's like, and there's always like, for me at least, it's always like a two second like, can I get away with still sitting down? Can I see enough? And it's like, all I want to do is sit. That's like sitting is such a wonderful thing. So yeah, baseball is the best for that. Uh if you get seats, if you are lucky enough, we were lucky enough uh, to get ridiculous seats uh, for the Chicago Cubs a couple of years ago. Yeah. You, me, and Nick Offerman. And well, what was better than that? I mean, nothing. Being a Wrigley Field, nothing, nothing is better than that. Uh, it's it's a great. Of course, those seats were so good that literally we were close enough to talk to the players. Yeah. Which was which, that might be a little more than than we deserve, but but it was uh, it was so delightful. But I would also say, just to put a fine point on this, that if, if you're at a baseball game in your home stadium and you've been sitting for three hours, and then it's the it's the ninth inning and the home team is winning and the closer's on the mound, then you get that fun moment where everybody stands up, like especially when there's like two strikes. There's like the, the baseball right. fans choose their moments to stand and and, and it makes good. it really exciting. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. That's true. By the way, when you're watching a baseball game standing up, it feels like a little bit of a different experience than when you were sitting yes, down. Yes, 100%. It's like, oh, there's tension now. There's really there's really tension. I think it's a great pick. And and leads to my pick. I didn't realize we could take things that we can't do anymore. Uh, so that's this adds to to my thing, which is my fourth pick. Uh sitting at a movie. I, I, I can't 
describe many things that I miss more sort of as a public setting. I love sitting at movies. I love the feeling of the lights going down. I mean, even even if it's a bad movie, it doesn't matter to me. I love just that whole experience of the movie going and and you know, I, I'm one of these people that it's like, yeah, it's great. We watched uh, uh, we watched Wonder Woman in our in our you know movie room, makeshift movie room, and it was great and fine. But it wasn't like going. It wasn't that great a movie, but it wasn't like going to the movie theater and being there, especially like on in an early stage, seeing like a movie in L.A. where there's the, the people are screaming at the screen and there's like this this sense of excitement. Oh, that's such a good feeling. And nobody stands up ever. No. Like that's like you have zero, like even if something exciting happens, uh, like at the end of Avengers, not like everybody stood up or anything. Everybody stays seated. Uh, oh, so wonderful. I, I miss that so much. Yeah, that's a good pick. I mean, it sort of feels like you miss movies more than sitting in the movies. And I miss baseball no, it's, it's more sitting. than sitting in baseball. I wouldn't want to stand. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever. There's no rules. This is anarchy. Um, all right, this is a controversial pick. It's a little bit of a reach, um, and, and and I don't even. This isn't a thing that I do that much, but occasionally I have gone on walks, socially distanced walks, as has, everyone has uh, with friends or something. And at some point, uh, in the middle of the walk, we sit like on a on a park bench. Park bench and sure. park benches are not very comfortable. Um, they're not, uh, particularly, they're not all sort of beautiful places to be. Uh, some parks are a little skeevy and a little scary, and sometimes it's too cold or too hot or whatever, but the experience of like taking a walk during this time and then resting for a second and just having a moment, having 10 minutes of repose on a park bench has been really lovely. Uh, and there are some park benches in, in this little strip of, of stores in my neighborhood, that I sit on sometimes just even for five minutes, uh, you know, either waiting for someone, you know, to, to my wife to finish whatever she's doing or whatever we're doing. And it, it is like, I, I've started doing this thing where I don't look at my phone, uh, in part because I'm trying to train myself not to look at my phone all the time anyway, but right. also in COVID, you're not supposed to just take out your germy phone and when you're out in public and wipe your germs all over your germy phone. Um, and so I've gotten into this thing of like, it seems so silly to say this, but like I just sit and I do nothing and I just sort of stare straight ahead. And it, it, it has, it's a weirdly pleasant thing to do. Uh, just, Very zen. yeah, it's a little Zen. It's a little, a little, a little Eastern or something in its approach to um, trying to live in a moment. And uh, I, I, it's not a thing I miss. It's a thing I've actually done more of than I, that I maybe had in the year prior to COVID-19, but, um, but it's very lovely. And I, and I'm a fan. Well, here's, here's why I think it's a good pick because COVID, no COVID sitting on the ground is unacceptable yeah. in, in all forms. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, whether it's a picnic, whether it's like, you know, just kind of getting down on the ground and, 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 you know, watching something, you know, watching kids play soccer, whatever it is. It's unacceptable. You must be off the ground. There's no comfortable way to sit on the ground. Am I right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even with like a blanket and uh, right, like a, the, right. you know, sitting on the ground is for the birds. Literally, it's what <laughs> it's, birds do. It's, uh, it's, <laughs> it is for birds. It, it's right. So, so park benches, even if they are uncomfortable, are infinitely more comfortable than sitting on the ground. So it's 
it is the best way to sit in nature. I mean, I guess you could sit on a rock or something, but but generally speaking, the the necessity of not sitting on the ground is so important that that I I'm going to be with you on the on the park bench yep. thing. All right, with my fifth pick, I am going to select uh, another one that I miss. I haven't done in a year again. I so desperately miss sitting in restaurants mm. uh, with friends and 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 look, I know that a big part of that is the friends part. So so I'm basically saying I sit, I miss friends. But when when we would go out, you know, and and you know, have enough friends that would do this, like the meal was aside. It was it was part of whatever you know the experience was. But it was all the time afterward and nobody wants to leave and you're just comfortable and you're just sitting there. Maybe you're in a booth, maybe you're like outdoors, like on a porch, uh, you know, on a deck or something. Uh, and it's just delightful. It's just so wonderful to be sitting there with friends and talking about stuff and and time goes by and, and you know, you, you, you need to be somewhere else, but you don't want to leave and I miss that. I do. I, I, you know, we all know about the restaurants and bars and everything else and all the controversies and all the, all the difficulties and all the places that have closed and all of that. But just that simple pleasure of sitting in a restaurant with people, uh, man, I miss. Yeah. Good pick. We both did pretty well this draft. I think. I I think think we both, I think our franchises are both going to benefit from our, from our, careful study and planning and our strategy. Well, considering that our other option was going to be to draft animal sounds, I think this is, uh, you know, this, <laughs> which, this, which we'll probably do next which, time. Which, by the way, yeah, we're just giving you an advance because we're out of ideas. That's it. I mean, you know, send in your ideas if you want to Twitter, send them in. I mean, we'll, we'll, we should start we're, soliciting we're, things. I mean, it's ridiculous that we haven't done that already, but we should start soliciting ideas for drafts. No question. Yeah. People, if you want to send us ideas to for drafts, just just uh, just go ahead and go to Twitter to me and Mike, and uh, he's at Ken Tremendous, and I'm at just at Jay Posnansky. And or uh, you know, type them up, send them care of uh, the Smithsonian in Washington D.C. <laughs> well, that that's we'll get the we'll get it that way too. They're, they're we'll currently curating the exhibit that is planned for mid 2022 to celebrate uh, right. 100 years of the podcast, and so right the podcast. Well, the podcast library, podcast like library. It the it's the library. official yeah. podcast library. Uh, so care <laughs> it's care of either the Kennedy Center or the Smithsonian, either one or Smithsonian. It'll get to us either way, but you can do that or you can do the Twitter thing, whichever whatever's easier for you. Maybe you're the kind of person who loves mailing things, so please feel free to mail it to the Smithsonian. <laughs> Um, all right, time for one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. It's one last meaningless thing to end this meaningless thing. We talk about sports and we draft things we know, like how beaches are terrible places to go. No hot fruit for Michael, no Diet Coke for Joe. The podcast was. I'm going to start because I told you I was going to do this and I don't think you believed me, but I I am going to do this. So one of the funniest things to me is how absurd uh, autocorrect has become on on our phones. And I think everybody it's it's not even so much. I mean, some of it's autocorrect. Some of it is just we're typing typing really, really fast. Yeah, we're just we're, we're fast typing and we're just going 
uh, through like so, so quickly that we can't keep up. Um, but essentially, well, for there, there, we, we had a, uh, <laughs> me, you and Brandon, uh, McCarthy had a, a little, uh, uh, tw- a text storm, I guess, uh, yesterday. And, uh, there were two things in it that, that struck me. One is that I texted to you that I had seen that Netflix does these like three word descriptors, I guess, for every show, right. That they play during like, they'll like, you'll see a teaser for Netflix come up and then below it, it'll have three words. Right. And, and like, for instance, for the good place, which is where I saw it, it was the first time I noticed it. They were like, it was like witty, uh, um, uh, something else and sitcom. Like those were the three, uh, words, which were, which were ridiculous. Uh, and you explained to me, maybe this was going to be your one last meaningless thing that these things actually have a name. Is that, is that correct? Yeah. Netflix, um, sort of pioneered this technology where they, they basically assign, um, categories. They have hundreds of them. I think, you know, more than 200 or maybe 300, 500, I don't know how many, but they, they sort of break their shows down using these by labeling them with these different things. And the, they call them, I believe they call them taste clusters. And it's how they, it's how their algorithm works in terms of recommending things. So if you watched The Good Place and The Good Place has internally, it will have, you know, 30 different um, taste clusters uh, assigned to it. Like, it, it, so things <laughs> like witty, clusters. sitcom, whatever, but then it'll also be, you know, female lead or, um, you know, even a, a specifically Ted Danson or, you know, um, Afterlife, whatever. So then they say, okay, well, this person watched this show and let's find a show that has, you know, two thirds of the same taste cluster labels that that does and we'll <laughs> recommend that. That's how, the, that's how their algorithm works. And so I think what you're seeing, I think they've started to do this thing. I don't know if they always did this or whether this is a new thing, but they've started kind of taking some of those labels and actually putting them underneath the shows that or movies that you have when you that you scroll through when you watch them so that it's kind of right. giving you a little bit of a glimpse into like what is this thing? It's a it's a it's a three-word trailer. Like you're like what is the show? Yeah. Oh, it's a witty Something sitcom, <laughs> funny sitcom or whatever. So I, 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 I don't know if those are the actual taste clusters that they use or whether they are distilling their taste clusters into different adjectives and then applying them. I'm not sure which one it is. But but basically, that is, that is at least a, a sort of representation of how their algorithm works in terms of how they uh, assign different labels to things and then use those when you watch them to recommend other things to you. Yes, it was witty, quirky sitcom were the there ones. You go. But I think the key was uh, that they are called taste clusters. I'm sorry that that is that is the greatest thing ever. Taste clusters. We should have taste clusters in all walks of life. Is what sure. I'm now I'm not. Okay. I'm I'm only like eighty, no, sixty eight percent sure that they're called taste clusters. I used to. I used to think they were called taste buckets, but that's grosser somehow. <laughs> so, and then I, I got corrected by someone, and you know, and I believe what they I was corrected to was taste clusters. So oh, they're taste clusters now. That's sure. Yeah, we'll just totally we, as far as clusters. we're concerned, we can uh, we can call them taste <laughs> we clusters. We can call yeah. them taste clusters. <laughs> delightful. The uh, oh my god, Marissa, our 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 delightful producer, just said something. They are in fact called taste clusters. Okay. 
There is a story on Medium about how taste clusters influence the books you watch on tele- on Netflix. There you go. What books am I watching on Netflix? What are they talking about? Well, like uh, um, The Queen's Gambit was a book. Oh, I so movies that they movies that they have come t- from t- books. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Taste clusters. Ah, yeah. oh, so good. Much more importantly, we were talking about whether or not, uh, uh, you know, Big Poppy, uh, David Ortiz is going to go to the Hall of Fame, and I think he will. And you, you were you, you don't know. You, you, you have questions, and you said where you wanted to say. Some people consider him a PED guy, which is true, right. by the way. However, because of either very quick typing or uh, um, you know some sort of autocorrect, it actually came out saying, no, she people consider him a PED guy. Right. So this came out as she people, right. to, which, to which Brandon responded, and I quote, they're called women, Michael. <laughs> 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 so there you go. Yeah. So so basically, I, you would not expect autocorrect to be into canceling people, but apparently, apparently it is. That's where it's. By the going. way, my res- my response you- to him was, "Hey, some of my best friends are she people, and and I'm actually married to a married. she person." So <laughs> which is which is so true. <laughs> I don't know how you got some to she. That couldn't have been an autocorrect. No, that was bad. I'm sure that was bad typing. I mean, I'm guessing what I wrote. I wrote like S H. O M E or something, and, <laughs> and it, 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 yeah, right. it. it was a combo of bad typing and um and then autocorrect. Oh, she, she people. people, she people is. I think that's how an alien would would refer to women, <laughs> and that's how you would find out that a person's actually was, an alien. Be like, let's go, let's go see so if we can find some she our- people. <laughs> I, was, I was so happy when our producer she person uh, marissa sent us that thing about taste clusters. that would be one way to one way to use that all right so there's she people from here on in uh that's it that's my one last meeting list mine is uh the other night lebron was playing cleveland and um i'm, I'm sure most of you have seen this but there's a moment where he took a a, a tough like 18 foot turnaround jumper at the at the end of the third quarter and um and missed and then the camera stayed on him and he kind of turned around and looked at something and you didn't know what it was and he had a look on his face of like oh really all right and it was confusing i was watching the game uh and i was like what's going on then in the fourth quarter he scored a billion points and just buried the cavaliers (laughs) and it turned out what happened later was someone from the Cavs front office had celebrated a little too loudly when he missed the shot in what was at that point a fairly close game. And LeBron looked over at him and was like, oh, really? You're going to celebrate me missing that shot? Okay, watch this. And then he scored a billion points. He scored 21 points in the fourth quarter, ended up with like 46 and like, you know, I don't know, 13 rebounds and just just became LeBron again for the millionth time, became LeBron, the greatest basketball player who's ever lived. Um, But it made me have this very, very specific feeling, which was of all of his superpowers, the idea that if you just want to, you can kick yourself (laughs) into that superstar gear. If, If that were applicable to anyone else's life, imagine how wonderful that would be. Like, I was just thinking, like, imagine if I could in a writer's room like pitch yes. a joke and people kind of go like, nah. And I, and then I could be like, oh, really? And then reel off 21 amazing jokes in a row <laughs> and just make the script that we're writing into the greatest TV script of all time. Like imagine if a CPA could like suggest a certain tax shelter for someone 
And the person was like, I don't know if that's for me. And then the CPA could go, oh, really? And then like, boom, 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 boom. Like just make the person like $10 million using using nothing would, but his or her CPA that, skills. Like I, what you wouldn't give to have that gear, that ability. I mean, my God. It's amazing. I would love that, by the way, in a courtroom. You're like, you're, 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 you're arguing the case and the judge, you know, is like, they're like, I object. And the judge is like, you know, yes, Sustained, you know, yeah. accepts the judge. And you're like, oh, oh, oh really? really? And then you just, <laughs> you just become the greatest lawyer that ever was. And people are like, people are like bowing to you at the end of your, like your closing statement. <laughs> this would be so great in every walk of life. I mean, every walk ha- of life. To have the, oh, really gear, the way LeBron has the, oh, really gear is, is just, that's the essence of like what we all dream about that whatever you do, you, if someone is like less than impressed with something you did, you can say, oh, really, just with your face and then become the greatest who ever lived at whatever the thing is you're doing. I so desperately want oh. to believe now that Shakespeare wrote some sort of piece of garbage <laughs> that he gave to the guy. And the guy was like, this is not good enough. And he's like, oh, really? Yeah, like, exactly. He wrote like a lesser, he wrote like Titus Andronicus. And people were like, it's fine. It's fine. And he was like, oh, it's really? Fine. King oh, Lear, really? Hamlet, <laughs> Twelfth Night. <laughs> I want to believe that now for every single person that ever like did anything. Yeah. Like, like that Jonas Salk came to them with like sort of one that's like, ah, this is, this will hey, work. Hey, I, like, I found a way to, to cure mild psoriasis. Oh, that's, oh, okay, fine. Like, oh, really? Yeah, fine, Watch whatever. This. Oh, really? <laughs> All right, we're we're not taking the O'Reilly concept forever because that is like the greatest concept in the history of the world. Yeah, it's like it's this, a, it's, that, it's my dream. My point. dream is to have one moment like that in my life. <laughs> who who has had the most like in sports? Because it really is sort of a sports specific thing. Who has had the most O'Reilly moments? Well, probably Tom Brady. It's right? Brady. It's it's all the guys you would expect, right? It's Brady, um, LeBron, Jordan, Kobe. Um, it's like, uh, and, and then guys probably like, um, I mean the Babe Ruth calling his shot. If he did that, yeah, that's, that's an O'Reilly no moment, right? <laughs> that's, that's an <laughs> like, uh, you know, got <laughs> any guy who was brushed back and then hit a home run, you know, like it's, I, it's in terms of how many, I mean, Tom Brady's entire career is an O'Reilly moment. He's it's still, uh, he's it's, still it's... angry that he was drafted 199th. <laughs> uh, but which by the way, come on. <laughs> Let it go. No, he can't. Let it it's all go. he has. You got like that's what it's kind of an amazing supervillain origin story that like you like if the league had drafted him, someone had drafted him in the third round, he wouldn't be this. It's <laughs> only because they ignored him it's, for so long. It's the funniest thing to think to me. Like you sit if you're in a room with Tom Brady, like now, and you're your buddies with him and you're like, Hey man, how you doing? And he's like, oh, God. And you're like, Tom, like you've, you're going to your 10th Super Bowl, 10 Super Bowls. I, I, we cannot, that number, you sent me all of these ridiculous Tom Brady stats and they're all amazing. 10 Super Bowls is like, it's, it's, it doesn't sound real. It sounds like something you would say in a really bad sports movie. Like, oh, this is his 10th Super Bowl. Like that's, it's, it's impossible. All right. You're in your 10th Super Bowl. You married a supermodel. You're like, like unbelievably good looking you're unbelievably famous you can do whatever you incredibly want incredibly handsome fabulously yes. wealthy <laughs> yes 
Yeah, but I was taken in the damn sixth. Well, that's round. obviously, can't, like, but that's why he has it, right? He he needs to find something. I mean, look, the Jordan documentary, the most the most incredible moment of the Jordan documentary was that story about that rookie who was like bragging about shutting him down, right. and then Jordan scored fifty on him or whatever. And it turns out that wasn't even real. He didn't even no. he didn't even <laughs> do what Jordan alleged he did. Jordan had to invent that because Jordan was a superstar from the time he was in college. Uh, and, right. and so these guys, these competition monsters, if they don't have something like I was drafted 199th, they just invent it that because they have to have that edge that they're that they're that they're rubbing up against. That's causing the friction that gets that drives them into crazy competition mode. Well, that's the thing. None of it was real. None of it was real with Jordan. That whole story about him getting cut from his high school team. He didn't get no. cut from his high he school team. Freshman. He was a sophomore. He was a freshman on, a, on a freshman. an incredible team. And it wasn't <laughs> good On an incredible enough. team yeah. that they never put uh, a freshman on the team. So they put him on the JV team. That's not getting cut right. from your high school team. Yes, it's all. They, they, they have to invent these moments. And what's incredible about LeBron is LeBron was arguably the most touted prospect ever coming oh, into I the league. Oh, I, I don't even think it's arguable. Right. And I don't so think he. So he, as a as a level headed guy, is able to summon what he needs to summon without inventing stuff like Jordan did, or without being the hundred ninety ninth pick, or without being cut from his high school team, (laughs) without any of that stuff. He's just able to be a superhero all the time because that's how good he is. These other guys, you know, that's what I think sets him apart. Frankly, is these other guys have to invent slights. And 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 well, think I, about their draft number from from 25 years ago. That's right. No, that's right. Well, look, I think that's there are two things that I have to say about that. One is, of course, I think that's why it makes it so funny and special when LeBron does do an O'Reilly because there is no O'Reilly in his right. life. You know, nobody's ever underestimated LeBron James ever. But one guy laughing in the crowd can bring out the O'Reilly. That's <laughs> that's awesome. But the second thing is the O'Reillys. Like that is that is the story, but I, you know, I just saw the the Tiger Woods documentary, which I'm not going to go into here. We can do that another time. Um, but Tiger Woods really had to like. There was no nobody ever underestimated Tiger Woods ever, no. ever. The guy was the guy was on that's incredible when he was like two. Like nobody nobody ever thought like oh you know and he's so when everybody was saying like oh Tiger wants to prove everybody wrong. That's not his origin story. His origin story was never proving everybody wrong. His origin story was proving everybody right. Yeah. You know, yeah. And it's just it's just different. It's just different. But I love the O'Reilly concept. If you could take one thing away from this podcast, people, take away the O'Reilly concept. That's <laughs> and go it. watch That's... the video if you haven't seen it already of LeBron. <laughs> it it's, is delightful. It's very funny. It's because like, like, I feel like if I were that guy. And I had celebrated a little too loudly. And then LeBron turned around and looked at me. What I would be thinking was, oh, no. Oh, my God, I'm such an idiot. What am I doing? Oh, no. And then just sadly watching is just like drive to the basket after drive to the basket. your response. Three after three after three just (laughs) raining from the sky. Your your young, scrappy, Colin Sexton-led team who is kind of making a little wave in the NBA in the early going, just being utterly dismantled by LeBron, 36-year-old LeBron James, and knowing that, and knowing that, by the way, it's good. People are going to find out. People are going to, there's, this is going to be a story. You know, he looked back at you. You saw, he locked eyes with you. Like, you know what's coming. And you know that you have to face the rest of the guys who run the team and be oh. like, I am so sorry. I never should have cheered. So- <laughs> 
And they're like, what is wrong with I you? I know. Why? I'm sorry. I couldn't help it. I got excited. I cheered when he missed the turnaround jumper. <laughs> oh, oh, really? All right, Mike. Well, as always, thank you. Thanks for having me. The presenting sponsor of today's show is Tops.com and Tops Project 70. Tops is celebrating the 70th anniversary of its very first baseball card design with a new program that pushes boundaries while also paying homage to their heritage. Founded in 1938 as a chewing gum company, Tops released their first baseball card set in 1951. Now, seven decades later, Tops has teamed up with 51 artists and creatives from around the globe to revisit and reimagine 70 years of Tops' most iconic baseball card designs through a year-long program called Project 70. Each artist will select their own MLB players and top designs from any year to craft a unique story. Ever wanted to know what Babe Ruth or Mickey Mantle would look like in a 1980s tops design? Or how about Fernando Tatis Jr. in the 1950s? Now you can. Three new cards launch daily all year long on tops.com and are only available for 70 hours before they're gone for good. While you're there on the lookout for special cards, each card drop includes rainbow foil editions numbered 1 to 70 randomly inserted into each card's print run as well as one of one gold frame edition given to a lucky purchaser. Exclusive artist proof editions numbered to 51 featuring a silver frame are also available for purchase for every single card. But hurry as those sell out shortly after each card is launched. So look, head to tops.com to learn more about Project 70 and to check out which cards are live right now.